Magnus, Jabs Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I do, or at least what I'm going to be doing in this particular episode, but what I do is talk about music. But ordinarily, what I talk about is comics, movies, and TV shows. But I do this infrequent, this irregular feature of my show called Musical Magnus, and at least historically, that's always involved uh, Tom Panarese, the two of us getting together to talk about REM albums. But, number one, it's summertime for good old Tom, and he's been crazy busy with all sorts of things that have, that have been occupying his attention lately, so no REM albums for us to be talking about, at least for a while. The other thing, though, is that Today's subject matter for Musical Magnus has nothing whatsoever to do with REM albums, but we'll we'll come back to that, I guess, when we come back to that. For right now, though, what I want to do is introduce the, the guest for this episode, the person who actually is going to be joining me, because it just seems like good manners, somehow. <laughs> so, anyway, I welcome, for the first time to this show, and possibly to the first time, or rather possibly for the first time to any show, Mr. Bob Fisher. Welcome to the show, sir. How are you? Well, thank you, Excellency, for having me on. This is quite a thrill. And to come on, the two of us, you would think, would be talking maybe something we have in common, like Kurt Swan, the greatest Superman artist of all time, or any number of comic book things that you and I could talk about. But no, we're here to talk music. And specifically, what music are we going to be talking about today? I think this is very interesting, and I was uh, quite surprised when you when you suggested it. Mm. Uh, because it's not one of your, you know, up there at the top. I understand why it comes from you, knowing a little bit about some of your musical tastes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, you and I are going to talk about a few songs from um, Coverdale and Page. Mm, yes, we are. Very interesting. Yeah, and uh, there is, believe it or not, there is actually a, a, a method to the madness here. And <laughs> um, maybe this is the sort of thing that we should have figured out before we actually started recording. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I did intend to ask you what your origin story is and then give my own so do you want to go first with your origin story do you want me to go first mine's kind of long music or or cover play uh cover play of this album or of music in general well specifically this album like what your origin story is with this album uh my origin story is very simple uh i heard um uh one of the songs Mm -hmm. on the radio we have in richmond virginia which is where i live in richmond virginia we have a really good college radio station here of the uh it's hosted by the university of richmond uh college and it's a really progressive hardcore 
great, great, great radio station because they let the students run the station. There's no, there's no adult in there saying, no, 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 you can't play that. So it's up to the individual DJs and the, whoever is on the air for that group of time gets to do what they want to do and learn how to be an engineer and learn how to be on the air and and do commercials and do what it takes to be in a radio station. And it's a, a small signal, but they are now online. But uh, we were in the car and uh, my wife has the U of R on, on the radio and flipped over there and I went, whoa, what is, wait a minute, what is this? This sounds like Led Zeppelin, but it's not Led Zeppelin. It's, wait a minute, who's singing this? Wait, I was, I was confused. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. And uh, seeing as it was a college radio station, they don't always tell you everything about who they played in that set. So they talked about something else. So, uh, and we didn't have a car, I mean, a phone in the car. So uh, I got back and called them. And I called the, the, the station and said, okay, you just did a set with X, Y, and Z in it. That second song, something about pride, maybe or something, and it and it sounded like Led Zeppelin, but with a different singer or something. What was that all about? Who was that? And when they said uh, who it was, we uh, I stopped and bought the CD. Hmm. So it was pretty much then. Uh, you know, and it's really funny that you that and another little uh, setup to us talking about it. Uh, how much of a coincidence, really, your your timing was when you sent me the message on Facebook about this. Oh, because yes, because not only at that uh, during that week, something I had been listening to, but at that very moment, I was reading the message online. I was listening to the Honey Drippers. Oh my gosh, you are kidding me! No. <laughs> is, is that amazing or what? That is. So for the last couple of weeks, and I hadn't listened to them in years, but all of a sudden I put them on, I'm listening to it, I've been listening to it through the week, getting into it and really thinking, you know, and I've got it on. It's literally playing in the headphones, and I go, oh, Magnus, a message from, what is this about? A cover play. Oh, you're kidding. <laughs> I w it was so I, so I didn't tell you that online. I wanted to save it for this. But the coincidence was amazing that I'm listening to Robert Plant and Jimmy Page in another band. And you say, hey, let's talk about this other band that Jimmy Page did. It, it's, just, it's just one of those things it's how weird. cycles happen. Yeah. Uh, but that's really it's a very simple story. I heard the song on the radio. I thought, wow, this is really good. Who is it? Oh, my God. Really? No kidding. Okay. We stopped and I got the CD right then. So it was, uh, uh, you know, pretty simple. Pretty simple story. All right. Actually. All right. Well, my story is, um, forgive me, it's a little bit more elaborate. Um, <laughs> this album, Coverdale Page, was released in March of... 1993, or to put that in some kind of better perspective, when I was in the sixth grade. And ouch, my bones just creaked a little. Yeah, well, so are mine. It's, <laughs> yeah, well, I'm I'm right behind you, sir. So, but <clears throat> anyway, so nowhere near my radar. You know, uh, sixth grade, my tastes, and we're going to be circling back to this, believe it or not. But my tastes ran a little bit more towards at that time what was new stuff, right? And 
I want to say that lasted for probably a good two years, two more years. And then pop music. you're talking about like pop music, top 40 pop popular, whatever was being played on the regular radio at the time. Well, grunge really. Oh, okay. All and, right. um, so that at was, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, it, it aided and abetted by the fact that I had two older brothers. Ah. And, and so, you know, that was sort of like my entree. So probably right. a, a, in a time and in a place when I might've still been listening to, color me bad or, or, yeah, or like uh-huh. the spin doctors or something like that. Instead, right. I was getting like the, the pride of the Seattle music scene of that time. Right. Oh, good, good. And so, uh, and there my, my, uh, I guess my musical acumen pretty much stayed, uh, with a stop off in, uh, Chicago for the smashing pumpkins and then, uh, to Georgia for REM, but otherwise pretty much it was Seattle. And so, mm-hmm. Uh, as I say, basically stayed there for about <clears throat> two more years, as I say, when you might call it, I guess, a uh, shamanic experience. I mean, I'd heard a whole lot of love before, but it, it just didn't really make much of an impact on me. And I'd mm-hmm, heard mm-hmm. Uh, Black Dog before, didn't really make much of an impact. Even Stairway to Heaven, it's like I liked it, mm-hmm. I admired it, didn't really make a whole lot of impact on me. But then one morning on the way to school, flipping through the stations cashmere's playing <laughs> and i'd never heard anybody play that way before or i'd never mm-hmm. heard anybody sing that way before and this was this was like something that was n- not new but different i'd never different. heard something yeah. like this before and i wanted i wanted more and more and more and before i knew it the only way i could accurately categorize myself was as a led zeppelin fan so this is based. This takes us now into you know the spring of uh, 1995. I'm finishing up the eighth grade at this point, and holy crap, the lead singer of Led Zeppelin or former lead singer and the former guitarist, they've kind of sort of gotten back together in a way, maybe a little bit from a certain <laughs> point of view, yeah. and they're tearing up the the country right now. They're on tour and they're doing this this weird kind of world music. And this is, isn't this interesting? And, and, you know, this whole time it's like, I become, I guess by some kind of fan osmosis, I'd become aware of the Coverdale page album, which I'm going to come back to in just a sec, but I'd become aware of it. Had no real interest in buying it. You know, Oh, you can't, you, you can't buy that. That's, that's uh, David cover version. You, you can't listen to him. He's, he's Mr. Ripoff guy. And, um, and, so that may have actually been like my official position, never to change. But Bob, I'm not sure if you remember this. Jimmy Page and Robert Plant released a studio album in, I want to say it was 1998, 97 or 98. It's one of the two. Pretty sure it's 98. Walking into Clarksdale. Mm-hmm. And I, of course, picked that up on opening day, right? There's no way I'm going to miss this. Right. I take it home, I listen to this thing, and the wheels have come off the wagon. There's just no yeah. other way to put it. And yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I I honestly don't know what the holdup is with, with that album, like what went wrong. It's kind of like the Star Wars prequels. It's like, where the hell do you start? Right. But something had gone horribly, catastrophically wrong. Like if you listen to that No Quarter album from 1994... They sound amazing. You know, Robert Plant, mm-hmm. his, his, vo- well, I can't say his voice sounds perfect, but it sounds really good. 
It sounds, sounds Robert Plant, right? Yeah. And uh, Jimmy Page's guitar, it sounds great. And he's got this rhythm guitarist with him up uh, up on stage. He sounds great. Too. Everything sounds great. Everyone's on on top of their game. And I, I can only imagine what this album's going to be like. And <laughs> yeah. this is one of those times when fantasy truly is better than reality. And it was just, yeah, yeah that was a bummer, dude. That's a fucking bummer. Yeah. And so I thought, well these are still my guys. And so it's like you, you spend this entire summer just lying to yourself the entire summer of 1998 lying to myself about how amazing this album is and never playing it because I don't, I don't want to ruin the experience of it. No, the fact is I just, I I can't stand listening to it. It's nothing to do with preserving anything. I I can't stand listening to it. So I found myself at blockbuster music one day in the summer of 1990. You remember, do you remember blockbuster music? Oh yes, Good old blockbuster. And they had we had uh, three or four of them here in town, both video on and one of them didn't carry any music at all. It was strictly video. You oh, had yeah. to go to you had to go to their South Side store to get music. Oh yeah. And there it was, Coverdale Page. It was on sale, seven ninety nine. And um, <clears throat> now this is many years, like five years after it had been released. And I thought, well. At the time, what I was trying to do, like, this was my Unicorn album, right? I was trying like hell to find this Neil Young album um, called Mirrorball. And Mm. basically, the shtick of that album is Neil Young used as his backing band Pearl Jam. So instead of his usual band, uh, he gave them, I guess, a couple of months off, and he (laughs) used Pearl Jam as his backing band. And I could not find that fucking CD to save my life. <laughs> all right. Or if I right. could, this was, and this was the problem that I was having. I could not find the CD or if I could find the CD, I did not have money to buy it because mm. teenager. Right. And so, you know, it's this weird sort of here I am betwixt and between this strange conflict. And anyway, so, and this idea of buying it off Amazon <laughs> didn't exist. Yeah. You know, didn't exist. Right. So, but they had Coverdale Page, and it's on sale for seven ninety nine. Ah, hell with it. Why not? It's eight bucks. I'll and tax. So I, I guess I'll give it a whirl. I took the thing home, and if it was possible, my depression that summer deepened. Because mm. not only did walking into Clarksdale suck so bad, it had its own event horizon. <laughs> Coverdale Page, it was like, this was what I wanted in the first place. Right. Just not with him. Not with David Coverdale. <laughs> Why did it have to be him? Uh, and it it was just the most depressingly good album I'd heard in months. And, and then over time, the strangest thing happened. Walk the pain of walking into Clarksdale, which is like my musical Phantom Menace. Mm-hmm. It's like the pain of that just kind of goes away. You can at least, you know, catch Page and Plant in uh, when when they're on tour, you know. Yeah. And it's gonna sound a lot better than that album. I mean, the songs. Well, they are what they are at this point. They are what they are. Yeah. They are what they are. Right. But you can at least go to see them in concert and, you know, power, mystery, and the hammer of the gods. It's right there in front of you. And it hit me in that moment. I'm sitting there. I'm listening to this stuff. And they're playing 
this is like a fully electric version now you understand with like the keyboard and all that fun stuff this version right. of no quarter and it hit me in that moment you know what i kind of wish they'd do right now i'd like for them to play a couple of tunes off of coverdale page and i know they're not going to but i would love it if they did and from it, i remember sitting there listening to that and it was uh it was whatever it was 1998 whatever sh- whatever show they played that year is like september october i want to say october mm-hmm. of 1998 um whatever show they played in um in houston and that was the moment i i will never forget it right as they go into that long piano solo and no quarter it's like i just sort of checked out not on the concert but I kind of checked out on Jimmy Page and Robert Plant as a duo, you know? Mm, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I came home and like this album kind of haunted me for the, I will remember this for the rest of my life, haunted me for the rest of that month. Like what would a Coverdale Page concert have sounded like, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah. And the, you know, the thing is actually we kind of, we do sort of know what that would sound like because they did play a couple of shows in Japan. Yes, they did. And Coverdale acted like a, a high schooler who has discovered the F word. <laughs> I, it was just so immature. It's like the songs, like the, the, the musicianship is great. It's the stuff that happens between the songs. It's, oh, geez. Mm. But where have you heard that? Is your bootleg out of that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think that entire sort of miniature tour that they did. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that's all out there on uh, on uh, bootlegs. Yeah, and, I might have to check that. It didn't even occur to me when I was looking this up and saw that they did do a, a, a short tour in Japan and around. I thought, I wonder if I should – I didn't even think about looking that up to see if it was online. Hmm. Well, Very interesting because usually I'll do that. If I see a concert listed somewhere, I'll go see if it's online somewhere. And, those, and like the thing is, those are very high energy shows. The yeah, songs I would sound have, great. I would bet, yeah. And they play Coverdale Page songs, obviously. Mm-hmm. They play White Snake songs. They play Led Zeppelin songs. And it's just a really good little balance of stuff. You know, it's it's a good variety. And the the thing about it that, especially all all, all these years later. Part of me is actually, you know, speaking now with the benefit of hindsight, you know, like almost 25 years later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Part of me is never going to forgive Robert Plant for for what happened here because uh, Coverdale Page, they had – this album didn't exactly blow up the charts or anything like that, but it did. It, it was the first album, you know, yeah. in, in, in a way. And it had some decent successes – and, you know, maybe, you know, like they were supposed to do a United States like stadium tour and apparently right. ticket sales just weren't really what they wanted them to be. Mm. And I, th- I, I think if that had been the only problem that Coverdale Page had had to deal with, they might have scaled the tour down. Well, we'll only play a couple of dates then, or maybe we'll play smaller venues or they would have found a way to basically to build this little egg into something. But when Robert Plant calls Jimmy Page and says, Hey, I got this thing with MTV. You want to join in? Mm-hmm. And it just kind of makes me think, you know, what would the follow up to this have been? Like, what would they have done to expand their sound, to uh, 
maybe grow into a little bit more of a songwriting partnership. And the thing is, thanks to Robert Plant, we will never know. Well, rumor has it, uh, in some places you'll find this, that Robert Plant did that on purpose, that he did not want Jimmy Page uh, and David Coverdale doing another album, another tour. He wanted that band gone, done and over, finished. Bye-bye. Yeah. Uh, I believe it, actually. I yeah. think there's something to that. Yeah, he... Um, because uh, we mentioned Honey Drippers a little earlier, and that was a Robert Plant thing. Now Jimmy Page played on a couple of those tracks with him. Yes, but that was a that was a Robert Plant saying, "I want to do somebody else's old fifties rockabilly, early Elvis, that kind of music. I want to do that stuff. And you guys want to come with me?" And you know he put a decent band together, and I really like those little. There's like five or six. It was not a full album; it was like an EP. Yeah, EP. Yeah. And I really liked that a lot, and I wanted them to do more. And I thought, God, I do more of this. But uh, apparently, that's what kind of started Jimmy Page wanting to do his own thing. When Robert Plant did his kind of little quickie. There was some hard feelings there, and it took a little while for the two of them to get back together. Yes. And then Robert Plant made sure, according to the rumors, that Page didn't, quote, leave him for the Coverdale band. Um, you know, if this was modern time, which it really was, it happened in modern, but you know what I'm saying, if it yeah. was now, yeah. uh, they would work around it. They would still, you know, it's like McCartney will do wings and not do wings or, you know, these guys and that guys. I think one of the beautiful things, one of the things I love about these kinds of projects and Coverdale Page and Honey Drippers uh, are a good example, particularly Honeydale Page. I mean, Coverdale Page. Mm -hmm. um, when you know a group really well. Like Led Zeppelin, for example. Mm -hmm. You really know Led Zeppelin really, really well. You know what Robert Plant's intonation, his voice sounds like. You know Jimmy Page's guitar. You know John Bonham's uh, drums. You know what these guys are capable of doing and what they sound like. Yeah. But it's really fun to listen to them with other people because then you hear what they brought to their own group. Uh, Traveling Wilburys, for example, you listen to the great first album of the Traveling Wilburys, you hear a Bob Dylan solo that sounds like something Bob Dylan could have done by himself. You hear a Tom Petty song. You hear uh, an ELO song with Jeff Lynne. You hear a Beatles song. Jeez. You hear those things because you've got all those guys coming from those different places and bringing that and if you know the Beatles so well, I can tell you right now when you go to Traveling Wilburys, if you listen to it, you know exactly, oh, George wrote that song. That's a George song. Oh, there's George's guitar playing guitar on this Tom Petty song. You know these things. Yeah. And I think that's what is so fun about this particular album of the Coverdale Page album is everybody who knows Led Zeppelin is familiar with Jimmy Page's guitar. It, it to me, Robert Plant, any of the other guys in other bands, that might sound like, oh, Robert Plant singing with the Honey Drippers, but it doesn't sound like Led Zeppelin. 
there are times in Coverdale Page where it sounds like Led Zeppelin with a different singer. Yes. And yes. that's very interesting. That tells you how powerful uh, Jimmy Page's guitar adds to the sound. And I'm a, I'm a music guy before a lyrics guy. If, if the music doesn't draw me in, then I don't give a damn what the song says. It could be the best <laughs> lyrics in the world, but if that's why if I'm not the, a sting fan, sir, <laughs> that, there you go. The music doesn't bring you to his lyrics. And, um, you know, it's why a lot of, uh, uh, you know, modern hip hop and rap doesn't get to me because the music from song a to song 53 over here, they're sampling from the same places. It's the same drum beat. It's the same thing. Mm -hmm. When you read the lyrics just as poetry, you'll laugh out loud. You'll go, God, that's brilliant. That's just terrific. But I can't get through your... <laughs> I can't get there with, with your music. You've got to do something to the music to bring me in. And I'm a little guilty of that with 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 uh, with Coverdale Page here. The the stuff we're going to talk about. Yeah. Well, most of these songs, I don't know what the hell they're saying. I haven't really read the lyrics. The music though goes, "Whoa, that's really good." And then when you start to look, particularly at the history of these guys, when you look at David Coverdale, for example. Who most people will, will go? Who? What are you talking? What do you mean, David? Who? Coverdale? I don't know who that is. Yeah. They don't know him as an individual, like you would know Robert Plant or Jimmy Page or Elvis Costello or all the other guys we've talked about. Yeah. You don't know Coverdale until you look at him and you go, "Oh, White Snake singer. Oh, yeah. and before that, he was Deep Purple." You know, and uh, the challenge he had and the challenge guys had because he was in the second wave of Deep Purple. He wasn't the original Deep Purple. So, you know, it's it's terrific history when you start tracing back these guys. And, uh, you know, I, I encourage people to do that. Look up some of these guys and then find out what's going on. Well, and the thing, you know, you, and you sort of touched upon this a minute ago, but one of the things I, that I just kind of want to drive home is that Coverdale Page was literally the last thing of Jimmy Page's that I bought. And before that, obviously I bought Walking into Clarksdale. Got it. <laughs> um, but I'd also picked up uh, The Firm's first album. Mm -hmm. And I'd picked up Outrider. Now, both of those are good albums. Don't get me wrong. Right. All right. But I think it would be fair to say, you know, it's not a cheap shot to say that, you know, Jimmy Page wasn't exactly on top of his game for those albums. I mean, whether it's just a matter of inspiration or if he was perhaps having some personal problems, who can say? But for whatever reason, right. the playing just wasn't where it needed to be. I mean, if you're right. going into this thing expecting Heartbreaker or something like that, dude, you're, you're shit out of luck. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, not on those two. Right. And, um, you know, they're, they're fine for for what they are, but they're not great. They're very, I would say almost kind of journeyman type albums. You know, it could have been from a certain standpoint, could have been anybody playing the leads on, on those albums. And that's, yeah, you know, they're not really in, inspirational. It's not the, those are not the kind of tunes on those albums that you will go, Ooh, ooh turn that one up. Yeah. It, it, it doesn't stop you in your tracks 
where there's a couple of songs on this Coverdale uh, page album that do this, that. You go, oh, wait a minute, I want to hear this. And you turn it up. Yeah. And that was so... It, it kind of twisted the knife, that extra that extra little bit for me, that mm-hmm. this was the best guitar playing that the man has done since at least 1976. And it's for something that is never again going to see the light of day. It's gone bye-bye. Yeah. yeah. And even if he and Coverdale were to try to put something back together, you talk about they're, talk about starting from behind the eight ball. I mean, yeah, I, yeah, you can't now. rebuild happen, this. No. You know? no. And no. the other thing is, I mean, my opinion has come to be that when it comes to you know studio albums and stuff like that, or even live performances for that matter, Jimmy Page, as a player, he's only as good as his drummer. And Mm -hmm. in 1973, when his drummer is John Bonham, who's going to notice, you know? Exactly. When you start getting into, like, if he's having an off night, how would you know? But when you start getting into The Firm, or when you get into Outrider, or when you get into, you know, or for that matter, Page and Plant. You know, I like Michael Lee. He was a decent drummer. Not Mm -hmm. exactly... I don't think he's anybody's favorite drummer, but Denny Carmassi, the guy who played the drums on Coverdale Page, I wouldn't go so far as to call him like a John Bonham clone, but he's damned close. I haven't heard drumming like that very often, like ever. Right, and, right. You know, he, it's got that that kind of meaty, weighty presence that Bonham was just sort of famous for, mm-hmm. and it. But it has this kind of clean sound about it, too. I mean, he's got his own distinctive kind of approach, very high energy, and it clearly was enough to to get uh, Jimmy Page going. And bye. It's over. And it, yeah. God, it just hurts so bad. Like that whole yeah. summer was just fucking depressing. I mean, <laughs> I, yeah. I wish I could tell you, you know. Yeah. And this is such a good, good band. And the bass guitar and the drum on this, you're right, it's not Joe, John Bonham, but it could be. It's its of that school, mm-hmm. and it's tight, it's clean, and it gives Paige something to work off of. And, um, and the vocals are solid. The vocals are really, really solid. Um, you know, I'm not a huge Coverdale fan of, of his vocals. Um, but I think some of that is, is a little bit of baggage that I carry with me because he, you know, he, he came into deep purple. I was a deep purple fan, Richie Blackmore and those early guys, Mm -hmm. you know, and when Blackmore left and I'm drawing a blank on the lead singer right now left and then Coverdale came in, uh, to deep purple, um, the saving grace to me that for the second rung of, or round of Deep Purple was that Tommy Bolin replaced uh, Richie Blackmore as lead guitarist. A lot of people and, say the same thing, yeah. And Absolutely. had had it not been for Tommy Bolin, I'd have probably given up on uh, uh, Deep Purple at that point. But Tommy Bolin, I, I think, is just one of the greatest underrated guitars ever. I just think he is just – and his Shake the Devil album just – to this day, you can put that album on any track and it'll still blow you away and be just as modern and relevant now as it was then. But uh, Tommy Bolin was the saving grace until at some point in the 80s when the original Deep Purple all got back together again. Hmm. But um, uh, uh, that's the kind of thing that was happening in those days. 
in the, I would say 60s, 70s and 80s, but because um, some of these guys started in the late 60s. So, you know, they're coming off of the British, um, uh, the British wave and they're adding to it. And uh, uh, it was growing rock and roll. People will sometimes, you know, uh, say some real negative stuff about the 70s as far as rock and roll, because disco started to come in and the top 40 radio stations were playing a lot of dance music. And you had to search a little more for rock and roll. You had to actually, you know, look for it. Hmm. And, and, um, uh, but that was my time. I was working in radio. I was a DJ. I was in the nightclubs. I was going to concerts three, four, five times a week and seeing some of the biggest bands and people around. I was playing music. Uh, Bands would come through town and use some of my equipment. Uh, you know, awesome. it, uh, you know, it was really cool to see Atlanta rhythm section up there with my amplifier. So, uh, Delbert McClinton did the same thing. It came back with a beer stain on it though, Can't but imagine it was, <laughs> I wish I could have got, I should have gotten him to sign it. I didn't think of it at the time and I've since sold all that stuff, but it was pretty cool at the time. But uh, but that's the kind of stuff that happened back then in the 70s when you're in the middle of this stuff and it and it followed through. So when these guys then in the 80s and 90s want to then see if they can, you know, uh, capture that thing again, can they do it again? Sometimes, yeah, they can do it again. Other times they can't. And and you've mentioned several attempts by Jimmy Page that just really didn't didn't hit the mark. They just weren't there. Um, and then all of a sudden, here comes this. with, And the jokes were there. They used to call David Coverdale David Coverband or Cover Man because he did so many covers. He was just, you know, and, and he got a bad rep because he wasn't starting bands. He was coming in to replace other lead singers. Yes. And then White Snake, and then when when he got White Snake, that became his home, and now I can't hear anything other than him for White Snake. So, and they're touring now. Do you know yeah. that? Oh yeah, yeah. They are out there now, and doing, doing apparently a damn good job too. I mean, they're apparently yeah. a, that that's a, a very big tour. So, well, I used to think it was funny when I would see these guys back in the seventies and live concert and you see Led Zeppelin live and you just turn to your, whoever you're with at the time and you think he's not going to sing that like that 20 years from now. And here we are 40 years later and the son of a bitch is still out there singing that stuff. It's, <laughs> it's staggering. It's absolutely staggering that these guys can do it. Um, you know, uh, and more power to them, more power to them. Right. I know a lot of younger people are wishing the baby boomers would just get the hell out of the way. Well, the, <laughs> and move on. But well, my God, we're still seeing Bob Dylan and the Stones and McCartney and even Ringo and Plant and Page. You're seeing these guys. They're still out there doing this stuff. My God, go give them your. Well, I was going to say go give them your 20 bucks. But yeah, find a $20 ticket nowadays. Yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> yeah. You know, but you did that mention, um, you know, I guess the mixing and matching of tastes uh, a little while ago. And mm. I mean, at some point we, you know, we do need to start talking about this album, but <laughs> the, you know, album. the um, but that did remind me of something. There was a comment and I want to say that Ro- Roger Daltrey, he said this, like 
it was probably circa like 19, late in 1999 or early in 2000, something like that. And by then, I mean, the writing really was on the wall that, you know, Robert Plant had decided to be a little brat. And so now Page and Plant was, it was going bye-bye. So to increase the depression that just seemed to get fucking worse and worse all the time, not only was Walking into Clarksdale just a crap album from start to finish, that was going to be their first and only album together. There was never going to be a chance to redress that. And mm. so uh, Daltrey, he made this uh, this comment, and who's to, who even knows how serious he was? But he did say that, you know, words to the effect of, you know, Jimmy Page, if you're reading this, give me a call. Let's Let's make something happen. And obviously nothing did. But it did kind of make me think, you know, uh, we just had sort of lead snake. <laughs> and then we had this kind of stripped down, I don't even know what, Jimmy Page and Robert Plant pseudo Led Zeppelin thing. What would, what would it sound like for Jimmy Page to play songs with Roger Daltrey? And it kind of made me think that could sound either really, really good or really, really horrible. I don't really see anything in the middle there, but... You know, the, I only see extremes in the in the possibilities here, but it just kind of made me think. You know, there's sometimes in life there's a lot to be said for just taking a chance. Just take the chance, man. Yeah, just take the chance. And you know, even if nothing positive comes out of a uh, Jimmy Page Roger Daltrey team up, other than an album and maybe some somewhat memorable concerts, dude, at least you did it. At least he didn't. Well, in the 90s, wasn't uh, Daltrey doing uh, returning cameos and stuff on Highlander and Lois Columbo and, and Lois and Clark? He was doing his TV acting in those days. Yeah. I actually liked his character on Highlander. I thought it was a fun character. Never saw it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, man. You should watch Highlander. That was fun. Well, I don't know about you should, but I enjoyed Highlander. It was a fun series. Well, uh, maybe I liked I'll it better it. than the movies, actually. Yeah, I've heard a lot of that, actually. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of that going around. But yeah. um, anyway, to I guess to uh, finally get down to brass tacks on this, um, as Bob alluded to earlier, we're not going to be talking about the entire album. And I suppose there are reasons for that. But basically what it came down to, at least for my participation, is that there were really three songs that I was going to insist on talking to Bob about. And as it turns out, there were, I guess, turnabouts fair play. Bob insisted on three different songs uh, <laughs> to talk about. And so the first one up, and we're just going to go through these, I guess, in album order. So Do them in album order. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I could never have planned for this, but it looks like my three songs are actually coming up first. So the first, the first one that I want to talk about is, in fact... The first one on the album, and this is Shake My Tree. Shake my tree. 
So, shake my tree. This may be a uh, a recurring theme in this episode because you know you sort of touched upon this already, Bob. But mm. to me, this is one of those songs that I have no idea, like in any kind of specific way, what this song is about. Mm. All I know is what it sounds like, and to me, in fine Led Zeppelin tradition. A song is not, it's rarely about whatever inspired the lyrics. That's just the occasion of the song. Right. To me, any Led Zeppelin song, is it's about the atmosphere of it, or, or the way that the song sounds, or the way that the drums sound, or, or, or uh, you know, what's the bass, the bass guitar sounding like, you know, what, what's going on there, you know? And that is, I think... It's it's true, I would say, of this entire album, Coverdale Page, really from start to finish. It's especially true, I would say, of uh, Shake My Tree. So you and I are both kind of at a little bit of a disadvantage, or at least I'm at a little bit of a disadvantage <laughs> in trying to rationally critique this on the one hand. Oh, on yeah, the other that's hand, I'm, I, I want to say that I'm actually uniquely qualified in, in, in some ways considering, you know, the level of depression that I was at in the summer of 1998, the fact that this song blew me out of my chair and mm-hmm. I instantly had to, uh, on my uh, remote control, hit uh, rewind on, on my CD and just start the song over again once it was over. <laughs> because there is just such balls to this song. Like, the, we look at the, we listen to those drums, you know, and. But the other thing that I that I like about this, and I'm going to give you the mic here again and very soon, I promise. But <laughs> one of the things that I like about this is something that's that was just desperately missing from walking into Clarksdale was this idea of layering, of craftsmanship, of building not just a riff, but you know, sort of orchestrating this thing into an actual composition now. And that is all over the place in Shake My Tree. So where are you coming from on all this? Absolutely. Same page with you on this. This is, this is uh, uh, a great way to open an album that you're not quite sure what you're going to get. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you would assume if you know these two guys, okay, you would know... Oh, wow, Coverdale and Pager together. Well, it's got to be rock. It's got to be metal. That's, I mean, these guys were in, you know, in early metal, you've got Deep Purple, Led Zeppelin, and uh, probably Black Sabbath, I guess I would throw in there as the the early three beginners to this. So if you're looking and you see two guys come from three of the original metal bands, you're expecting something. Uh, you're not expecting, you know, uh, violins and ballads and love songs. No. You're expecting Jimmy Page's guitar to grab you, and then some screaming vocals to plant you in your seat. No pun intended on the plant. <laughs> <laughs> but but and Shake Your Tree does that right off the beginning, right? And as an album, that I I love that 
once these artists are in the studio, they've recorded this stuff. Now they got to figure out how they're going to put them together on the album. Mm-hmm. And you There's know, an I'm entire sh- philosophy with that, yeah. Exactly. Is how, where are you going to put these songs together? And um, you know, there are people and producers who every time they produce something, they want to uh, produce a Sgt. Pepper or an Abbey Road. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you just got to say, no, sometimes a great album can just be the white album where you're not worried about this flowing into that, flowing into that. You just want to put the best music you can in a pleasing order. It doesn't have to be Sgt. Pepper every time. This is not a Sgt. Pepper album. This is not uh, a theme album. This, you know, this is this is two good rockers putting their shit together and laying it out there for you to see. And then right on the first track, Mm -hmm. it shows you an attitude. And I think your word was 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 right on the money. It sets the atmosphere of what this album's going to be about. And it's it's I used to do this thing when records were albums, when they were literal vinyl albums and they're they're making a comeback. And that's nice to see. But yeah, I would do this thing as a DJ just called drop the needle. You put the needle down in the beginning of the track and you give it 30 seconds or so. OK, what are you doing? Come on. All right. Mm, next song. What do you got? Mm, OK, what do you got? And as a DJ, you do that, particularly when you get a new album and you haven't gotten any, you know, promotional material up front with it. The record company hasn't been saying, hey, play this new Donna Summer album. You got to play it, play it, play it. You just here's a stack of albums and you're listening to it to pick something to play. Well, as soon as you drop the needle on this first song, you don't lift it back up. No, you you don't go, oh. Okay, let's skip and see what the next one's. You wait, you listen to this, and then you might want to go back and listen to it again before listening to the rest. This is a great opening song for this album. It sets the table for what you're about to hear in this album. I agree. And 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 the little cut about no violins and ballads. There are a couple of ballads on this album. Yeah. Uh, there's no violins that I remember, but there are a couple of really nice uh, and and Jimmy Page is doing some beautiful. We'll get to it in a minute. Uh, some acoustic guitar playing. Oh, yeah. But as a way to open up an album to let you know that these are giants of the field uh, of their genre, uh, there's no mistaking. You may not know who that drummer is in the opening, in the beginning, but when that guitar starts, there's no question in your mind who this is. You may not know the song, and you go, whoa, what is this? That's what this is. Well, Great way to open this album. I agree. And, like, the thing about it that, like, really works for me – actually, there are two things. First off, there's, like, the mission statement aspect of it where, like you said, uh, you kind of hinted at this a second ago when you said – I think a lot of people probably came into this thing expecting this kind of 80s sort of screaming metal. And mm-hmm. they're screaming in this song, but is it is it metal? I don't I don't think so. I mean, this is a very blues-oriented type of album. Absolutely. And it's true musically, it's true lyrically. It's just a very it, this is not a blues album, let's be clear, but it's very <laughs> blues influenced. It's very affected by the blues. And that, I mean, if you're at all familiar with Jimmy Page, I guess that's a logical assumption that you'd probably want to make. But I mean, 
I don't know. It's just it that was not necessarily what I thought. even having heard people talk about what this album was. Mm hmm not really expecting the degree of influence that that just permeates basic i think almost every single track on this entire thing yeah and so you know there's that just stylistically you know what this as the lead song portends for what's to come but there's a dividend with all of this and i speak here of the the sort of precision playing now I'm a Jimmy Page fanboy from way back, okay? I love Jimmy Page. Big fan. But I'm not going to blow sunshine. Uh, he is not exactly the first guy that I think of when, when, you, when you talk about, like, that precision playing. Dun, dun, right. dun. Dun, 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 dun. He's not the guy that I would in, in instantly want to uh, nominate as the guy that's going to play that way. But damned if he can, not only can he do it, did it amazingly well. And when I when I said a second ago that Jimmy Page is really only as good as his drummer, this is a very good exhibit A of what I'm talking about here, because I could picture John Bonham playing something like this. Mm-hmm. And when I say that, you know, Jimmy Page isn't exactly like the precision player, he does have a very sloppy type of style. And one of the things that I guess I was guilty of is that that kind of lulled me into this idea that, well, because he usually prefers to play sloppy, that must mean he can only play sloppy. And that's not mm-hmm. simply not true. Right. It, it's right. Obviously, it's not true. Right. And so I, I say this to say that it was eye-opening to me to learn something at, at that stage in my Led Zeppelin and Jimmy Page fandom to still be learning new things about this person as a player. It was mm-hmm. in that way. It was it just kind of reminded me that don't ever underestimate the guy. You know, it's yeah, never underestimate him, especially. And that's the, the so many times when uh, the guys who rise to the top, when you start to look at their history and listen to them, then you start to see, oh, they really know what he's doing. He's not just you know uh, making this up. He knows what he's doing, and uh, his licks are based on uh, – you can go right to the old blues guys of the 20s and 30s, Robert Johnson and Blind Willie McTell, and you can find their early big belly acoustic guitar licks being played by Jimmy Page. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's when the good guys, when you know they're really good. That's how I knew Jack White of White Stripes. Oh, yeah. He's the real deal. Yeah, Is the real fucking deal because the boy knows his history and he breathes it and lives it and he understands it. And when I heard him do uh, your Southern can, I went, oh, my God, oh, I was, just blew <laughs> me away, blew me away. That he would almost word for word, lick for lick, beat for beat, take a song from 1919 or 1920. And he's right there and, with it. He's and right there it. with it and bring it up to modern day. And it's just so damn good. So this does that, too. Yeah. That's what I really appreciate about these kind of guys. The good ones do. There's a reason, you know, obviously there's a reason why the Katy Perry's of the life and the production people will all move to the top two and the top 40. But in the other world, in the real world of music, 
there is a real reason why some of these guys make it to the top and why other people would say, I'll take Jimmy Page any day in my band because he's that damn good. Right. Well, and like the thing about it is, you know, it, you know what? I'm, I'm glad this happened because the, uh, I spent probably the great majority of my teenage years, basically my adolescence, I suppose, sort of mm-hmm. not completely looking down my nose at pop music, but I always kind of struggled to respect it. You know, it was right. very hard to respect it. Right. And just look, hear me out. Okay. I want you mm-hmm. to hear me out before you, before you <laughs> jump on me here. Okay. Right. You promise? I promise. I'm okay. right there with you. All right. <laughs> of all things that, sort of changed my ideas of pop music. It was actually Britney Spears hit me baby one more time. <coughs> and yeah, I know. I know. See, I choked a little bit there on my teeth. <clears throat> Hear me out. Hear me out. What, if you listen to that song and I mean like from a technical standpoint, like uh, mm-hmm. the idea of what is a single and how do you craft a hit single and what are, just like the technical mechanics that go into that, you know, and how many takes of this drum pattern do you have to get down before you find the right one? How many takes of the bass guitar getting laid down do you have mm-hmm. to go through? So on and so on. So just like from a technical standpoint, like the, I guess the view of music as workmanship, I kind of had to respect it because when I really started thinking about like the production of just that one song, the the number of man hours that probably had to go into that. Mm, right. And then all of this money, all of this time, all of this, um, the studio equipment, these, uh, these engineers, these producers, all of these people that are, I would have to assume very active, very successful, very productive in their field. Writing a song or I should say recording a song that was written by somebody for whom English is his second language. And he had no idea (laughs) that hit me baby one more time. That has a very specific meaning in English and it's not very positive. Right. And so there's a fly by the seat of your pants element of pop music that on the one hand, yeah, we're, we're making this thing into a, a little bit of a science. We're turning something that should be art into a little bit of science And this is, by the way, strictly a a profit-seeking venture. Nobody here is necessarily out to create the next Abbey Road or something like that. Right. And their model for doing so could be interpreted as a valentine to domestic abuse. So it was this this thing, not that it is a, a valentine for domestic abuse, the fact that this song is somebody just wasn't paying attention or didn't care, didn't know, or I don't know. But somehow this becomes this girl's breakout hit and she's never looked back ever since. And so I'm not trying to like sing, sing the praises of pop music, but because there, there was a hit song out there called hit me baby one more time. (laughs) You know what? I clearly misjudged this entire genre. But (laughs) when you say that, this is not a pop song and that these guys are more about not even the song or not even the solo. It's the groove of it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all about that's that particular song's groove and where is the groove. And for someone 
like Jimmy Page, his stature, his talent, for him to be just so on the fucking money with every single note that goes into this song, it's almost, it's like I said a second ago, who cares what the song is about, about? I don't, I mean, hey, if nothing else, it's not an ode to domestic abuse, so we've already got one up on Britney Spears. So, uh, anyway, I just want to throw that out there. Well, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because, uh, you know, I was down on pop music too, even from a very early age. I mean, you know, almost preschool, little kid, because uh, top 40 music was very different when I was a little kid. And, but to me as a teenager, what really opened my eyes to what could be the potential of of uh, studio production music mm-hmm. that could be raised to the level of great art was the monkeys. Oh yeah. The monkeys totally put together as a production to make fun of and to make profit from the Beatles. They were not formed as a musical group. They got lucky in that, whoa, two of them are musicians and the other two did pretty well at learning what they had to do, but they had great songwriters and Mike Nesmith and Peter Tork were musicians, and Mickey Dolan's learned to play drums well enough to to <laughs> actually do it live. But uh, uh, you know, it's one of those kind of things that pop music in those days that started me looking at things a little differently. That well, okay, everything doesn't have to be you know, um, uh, guts or glory or doing it for the love or whatever. They were done strictly profit margin. It was done strictly for a TV show and to make money, but it also turned out a good product. So, uh, and then closer as I became a DJ, um, and I, I had to, I had to admit, uh, uh, about uh, six months, maybe a year after she hit the mar hit the, the, the the pop charts or whatever that Madonna actually had talent. When I saw like a virgin, I thought, Oh my God, this is a, this is a shot in the dark or one thing she's gone. Uh, but as a DJ in the nightclubs, I was getting requests for her album a lot. Everybody goes, Oh, you got to play. You got to play. I just thought, I don't want to play it. She sucks. There's no (laughs) talent there. I don't want this. And then I saw the Papa don't preach video. And saw that she actually wrote the song lyrics and the music and helped direct and produce the video. And I went, holy shit, she's the real deal. She's real. And then when more hits came afterwards and Vogue and some of that other stuff, pop music, yes. Dance music, yes. Top 40, yes. But it was not bad. It was not terrible. It was actually good creativity coming out of that genre. And I had to, you know, kind of eat the words a little bit and say, okay, yeah, well, like a virgin sucked, but she did what she had to do to make that splash. And then when the light was on her, she actually performed and, and brought the goods. Yeah. And I think that's what makes the difference. And we'll see that throughout time. You'll see them come and you'll see them go. They'll have a one-hit wonder and gone because they're the cute blonde this week. Some of them make it and stick it out. Uh, and I like you. And to bring it back to this album, it's it, it, it's too bad because we hear in this album the potential of what could have been. Yeah. 
And so we can rejoice in the fact, yeah, we got this one, but it does kind of a bummer that where's the rest of it? Where's the rest of it? Yeah. Which leads us to the next song on your list. And this is Pride and Joy. So, starts off with a little bit of acoustic guitar, which, you know, just, I guess, between you, me, and the wall, that's not exactly new territory for Jimmy Page, but it almost right away goes into that screaming guitar and then never looks back. But I guess one of the things about this that really works for me is, again, I mean, what is the song about? Who cares? But (laughs) the the layering of, and I'm going to be talking more about layering as we go along, but right here we, we get another little inkling that there's more to Jimmy Page than just a cool guitar. And there's an entire songwriting and I would say even music production philosophy that goes into the best of Jimmy Page's work, mm-hmm. whether it's with Led Zeppelin or just whatever. When when he does what he wants to do, there's a, a good example of what I'm talking about here is, you know, it's easy to point back to Stairway, Stairway to Heaven and say, well, there you go. <laughs> and indeed right. you can. But uh, maybe a, a, a sort of second secondary example is In My Time of Dying mm. which never really gives up on there's a there's tracked throughout a a rhythm an electric rhythm guitar mm-hmm. an uh, acoustic rhythm guitar and then an electric lead guitar and those three they're basically playing as far as I can remember throughout the entire song and obviously it's Jimmy Page playing all of them. Right. And the song sounds just weird if it doesn't have the uh, electric uh, rhythm guitar. Or it sounds somehow emptier if it doesn't have the acoustic uh, rhythm guitar. And I don't even want to know what the song sounds like without the electric lead guitar. <laughs> so mm-hmm. there's an entire philosophy to all of this that he understands like what the human ear can really uh, mixing my metaphors here but digest a little bit Mm -hmm. and so what we get with pride and joy is the the acoustic guitar is most prominent at the start of the song if you listen carefully never really goes away no it simply is accompanied by the electric guitar but one doesn't overpower the other there's this and I'm not even talking about just like how the, the instruments are mixed in the studio, how they kind of play off each other in the song as Coverdale unwinds all the lyrics and just goes through this apparent, this apparently just unlikable girl. And <laughs> the it, it's it's just this weird 
one-man kind of musical alchemy that's going on. He's taking these these two separate elements and then creating some some third thing out of it. It's 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 artistry. I don't know what else to call it. Well, that's the beauty of some of Jimmy Page's greatest work is his combination and the use of the acoustic guitar and the electric guitar playing off of each other. Uh, to me, there's there now. It, to me, everything goes back to the Beatles. You know, it's it's just one of those things. But um, the Beatles were good at that, too. And George Martin, the fifth Beatle, added a lot to that of being able to bring in instruments all, you know, um, and playing off of each other. Songs that you would think uh, wouldn't work without a lead guitar. And yet you hear you know, uh, uh, George Harrison play the acoustic version of while my guitar gently weeps and you just want to cry. It's just beautiful. It's absolutely gorgeous. And this album is, is like that. And we'll get to another one, but you mentioned the layers. That's the kind of the, the genius here that we're seeing in Jimmy page. And I think regardless of who actually produced these, I think Jimmy Page had so much input in the instrumentation and the mixing of this album. Um, you can just hear his fingerprints all over it, so to speak. It's um, I, I just love the way that he and and always early Led Zeppelin stuff. I mean, you, you, there's so many great Led Zeppelin songs that start with this acoustic, um, just this. You just think, well, I could listen to that all day. But then the rhythm guitar comes in electric, and then the the haunting lead over top of it is just so incredible. Yeah, over uh, the hills and far away. Yeah, that's... exactly. And it's just it just blows you away. And it's to me that's just pure Jimmy Page doing that. Um, it's in the song. Um, oh God, what is that Led Zeppelin song? It's the old um, Ramble. Oh, Gallows uh, Gallows Pole. Oh, okay. God, I love that song. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and and it does the same kind of thing. It's so layered, and that's one that's a very dark, uh, lyrically, that's a, a very dark. Well, it's a dark humor in a way. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And uh, uh, But that's Jimmy Page there. I mean, it's great Robert Plant vocals, but it's Jimmy Page in and out with the way he's doing that acoustic guitar and the fact that the song starts – almost like the song had been going on for several minutes and then they slowly turn up the volume mm-hmm. to bring you in. It doesn't have a cold start or anything. So it's, it's just, it's a great, great song. And one of the songs later in this, on this album, a little bit reminded me of that a little bit from the way it starts with the acoustic guitar and, um, and then, and then just takes you into the Jimmy, Jimmy pages, you know, stream of consciousness. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, now do you have anything else, any parting shots for pride and joy? No, other than this was, I think their single, this was their big single off of this. Uh, yeah. I think this one probably did well, you know, and the other thing about the album is that it did have critical acclaim. It did well with the critics and in the United States, I think it sold half a million copies. So it got a gold record Yeah. and did well, worldwide and I, I and I joked um a couple of years ago to a guy we were talking about and I and I mentioned that it was you know uh one of the biggest 
under the radar gold records you'll ever hear. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, name a normal human. Find any normal human out there. They could probably name a couple of Led Zeppelin tunes, even if they don't listen or like Led Zeppelin, right? Mm-hmm. Ask them to name one Coverdale Page song. Yeah, good luck. They're not going to do it. They're not even going to know these two guys recorded together. And yet the album did well financially enough that they should have gone on with another one. And uh, it it uh, um, had critical acclaim. The critics loved the album. It didn't get, you know, very many negative. Rolling Stone uh, praised this album. So, oh. hmm. I've never actually read any reviews. Uh, now that I think about it, I, after we finish up, I guess I'm going to take a look at it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That'd be worth checking into. So. Yeah, I did a couple after we talked online. I went and read just to see what the critics said about it. And I was quite surprised that critics actually liked it quite a bit. Hmm. Well, the, More uh, for Page than, than, than Coverdale. They, I think one Rolling Stone actually said, while wow, Coverdale was good – Pretty much any uh, singer of his caliber could have handled the material. The album wasn't special because Coverdale was on it, I think was kind of what they were trying to say. And I think there's probably merit to that. I mean, I don't mm-hmm. want to go so far as to say that Jimmy is carrying uh, Coverdale. I don't I don't know if that's completely fair. But at the yeah. same time, I mean, you're just you're not being honest, dude, if you if you say that. Really, all Ke- Coverdale, from a certain standpoint, like when it comes to singing, all he really had to do was show up and really just not stink right. up the uh, studio. And exactly. Exactly. So, um, I, I, again, I mean, I'm sure it was more complicated than that, but at the same time, was it? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Anyway, to uh, move uh, right along here, the third and at least final of my my choices is the song over now all right so i'm gonna take the lead actually on this one I mentioned a while ago uh, Jimmy Page's uh, preference for layering, and uh, it seems kind of dismissive to call it an overdub, because what we're what we're hearing in this is I think a little bit more sophisticated than just an overdub. But when you look back at some of Led Zeppelin's most famous songs, you've got "Stairway to Heaven," you've got "The Song Remains the Same." You've got Kashmir. You've got Achilles' Last Stand. The thing, the unifying effect of all of those songs is what Jimmy Page called the guitar army. And it's basically, again, it's multi-tracked guitars, but it's not, it's not just an overdub. It's basically intended to uh, give the guitar different voices. So it does in a, in a certain kind of way sound like a chorus of guitars. And Over Now is probably the best example, certainly on this album, but maybe of Jimmy Page's entire career of just a kind of rank and file cookie cutter guitar army 
what that sounds like. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things that it's really hard to reproduce in a live setting, and I understand that. But, you know, Jimmy Page was never the type of musician who was overly reliant on the studio. Right. But at the same time, there were certain tricks that are really only available to you in a studio, and the Guitar Army thing is sort of one of them, right? And right. here again, this is one of those songs that it kind of defies rational criticism in as much as I don't know or really care what the song is about. I mean, we can gather that, you know, it's kind of, lyrically, it's kind of bluesy subject matter. It's somebody who loves his ex almost as much as he hates her. And that's not exactly new territory for the blues, God knows. Right. But what does make this thing just transcend just the blues, as if that's not enough by itself, but if you need it to transcend the blues, it does in that this is a very bluesy sounding guitar, but with a guitar army dimension, it now has this extra element to it. So he's not, again, he's not just, he's not playing just the blues. It's it's a Jimmy Page composition filtered through a blues influence. And I just, this was the song, even more than Shake My Tree, this was the first song on the album that really stood out to me. Like, holy crap, that is an amazing Composition. This is an amazing piece of music. This is like a real piece of music. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, um, what you got? Same with you on that. It is, uh, I love the phrase, the guitar army. And some things, like you say, can only be done in the studio, and you're not even going to try to reproduce them live. Um, but, again, it is Jimmy Page doing something that... Um, that I think he enjoys occasionally, but if you look through his his discography and his musical history, you're not going to find a whole lot of Jimmy Page doing overdubs just for the sake of, you know, uh, another version of that lick. He usually does it for a reason or to add some weight to it, and I think that's what this does. It just adds a layer of weight and gives him a little more uh, to play with. Um, But I just think it's a beautiful song. I just really do think it's, uh, you know, and you might not think the word beautiful can go with a song. This dark. This dark. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But but, uh, I really do. I think it's got some real beauty to it. It's, um, um, and I think the guitar army works really well here because it's the kind of thing that gives this particular song um, replay value. You know, you can go back and and listen to and then try to pull apart certain little areas and um, see how many guitars are really playing and how many dubs and how many times and whatever. And uh, I enjoy doing that kind of stuff. Yeah. And the vocal doesn't take you out of it at all. It it's. Uh, um, it's there for mood as much as it's there for mood and and dark is exactly what the song is and the vocal goes right with the guitar I think this is a, I think that's one where reason I, I I say it's a beautiful song is because all the parts work so well together regardless of the content uh, it's it's musically just just really 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 well put together. Yeah, it's almost and, like a musical literature in its own kind of way is uh, like musicianship as, I don't know, like literary sophistication in its own kind of way. I mean, it, it's eloquent playing. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, absolutely. 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 Uh, uh, If this was a vinyl, I don't know how this was laid out on the vinyl, but this would be a good way to inside one, uh, particularly with what the next song is. Uh, And what is the next song? The next song. (laughs) Funny you should mention that. This is the first of my three choices. And I will assume, just for the sake of it, I don't know if the vinyl, how they did it, but uh, this would be a great song to either start side two, which is what it does, or I, it would have been a great opening song. And, uh, uh, but that's why I picked it for my first song is, uh, this sums me up and my feelings about rock and roll really, really well. Uh, and again, not knowing what the lyrics say too much, uh, only, uh, on top of it a little bit, but, uh, the song itself, the attitude, the sound, uh, this is this is a me kind of song all the way, and it's a song called Feeling Hot. song your lead what you got well on this song and like i say to me this is this represents me really well because it's uh it's balls to the wall it's Mm -hmm. take no prisoners it's not trying to be anything other than what it is a hard driving loud three chords stand up and rock and roll it's just jimmy page at his best he's just the, the the opening the, the line says it it's feeling hot he's feeling hot he's ready to go let's turn this ship on yes and and it doesn't stop it doesn't give you room to breathe it just if you were sitting down or lulled or felt like wow that was a nice little ballad okay now it's time to wake up again and uh, this song is just pure honest rock and roll just rock and roll agreed and i love it for that reason if there were no words if the only thing that coverdale was doing was saying oohs and ahs and unts and grunts Mm -hmm. this would still be a great song because it just does exactly uh exactly what the first you know within 10 seconds of dropping the needle on this song, you go, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> All right. All right. Turn it up. Rock and roll. Yeah. It, it, it's, it, it's got that groove. And, the, you know, the thing about it is this is a good song on its own merits, and I'm not taking anything away from that, but you kind of hit the nail on the head a while ago that this is the logical follow-up to a song like Over Now, where you have this very kind of dense and sort of dark type of type of mood going 
And, you know, that's definitely not a, ha- a shiny, happy, chipper type of song. And then following it up with, like, this, this blistering balls-to-the-wall, just nonstop, pulse-pounding riff. And, my God, those drums. And <laughs> the... You know, Jimmy Page has this philosophy with songwriting, but I think... I don't think... I, I honestly don't believe he's ever copped to this uh, publicly. Or if he has, I've just never seen him do it. But he has this philosophy that definitely applies to songs, and I think he applies it to albums as well. He calls it light and shade, where you have different moods and textures for different songs. And one of the things that you, I, you know, whether somebody is a Led Zeppelin fan or not, what they, the very minimum they have, and the, even this is kind of damning with faint praise, but the very minimum that they have to give Led Zeppelin is the 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 kind of moods and shifts of any given Led Zeppelin album where it's not just a wall of noise, you know? Mm-hmm. Some songs are really, really high up. Others are really, really low down. Some are uh, a little bit more fair to Midland. And they basically have their own sort of uh, stylistic sort of voyage that they go on. And in a weird kind of way, I, I, I would almost want to compare it to a symphony in that any decent uh, symphony is going to have, you know, different moods and textures going for it, you know. And even if mm-hmm. they have recurring uh, themes and motifs and things, they're going to be played uh, in different ways by different instruments, and maybe even in different keys or in different or just fucking, you know, whatever. Absolutely. And, mm-hmm. and that same type of philosophy, the... And I'm I'm talking here about the best of Jimmy Page's albums, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, let's face it, anybody's going to have clunkers. <laughs> yeah. Walking into Clarksdale, I'm looking pretty much right at you. <laughs> and right. the that is just not an issue here where there are so many different... Anyway, I'm beating the, the point to death, but my, what I'm saying is Feeling Hot is the best possible... Um, uh, follow-up to over now and it's it's a complete change in mood and i just i i like it just for that it works mm-hmm. fine on its own merits but this is number one this is definitely a deep cut but it works best with that pairing if you're listening to it on a cd then there's obviously just the one side but even if you're listening to it on 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 vinyl you get up to to flip the thing over this is still the follow-up. This is, number one, a damn good start to uh, side two, but it's yes. also still following over now, and it's just, it's the perfect transition. It's, I literally, nobody could have done a better job of that transition. This is just pitch perfect. It's great. Don't I wouldn't change a thing. Yeah, absolutely agree. I, I, I love that fact, and I love that, the way this album flows like that. Um, you know, because we're cherry-picking you know, uh, you know, songs. And in fact, I'm really glad the way we set that up because you mentioned the three songs you definitely wanted to talk about. So I thought, well, to be different, because to be honest with you, originally two of the three you chose would have been two of my picks. But I thought, well, no, let's let's go a little deeper. Let's, let's do those things. Let's see what else is here that will stand up with those first three. Mm-hmm. And and um, this one 
it, it's just one of my favorite songs on the album. I just really, really, really love this song. Uh, and I think, again, because, um, you know, it's not making any apologies or anything for what it is. It is just pure rock and roll. It's energy. And it works so perfectly as a follow-up to Over Now that, um, you know, whether, again, like you say, whether you're listening to it on the vinyl and you've got to get up and walk over to turn it over or on the CD, Over Now is still going in your head. You're still thinking of it. It's, wow, that was heavy. That was this. And, wow, the layers and all that. And then... this is is, okay wake up folks and uh it's it's just beautiful i love this song i love this song a lot actually i like all three of my choices i like this album did i say that (laughs) (laughs) well you know the thing about um you know there's a there's a led zeppelin song that literally is called rock and roll and they used that song to open, I don't even want to know how many of uh, of their concerts. I think all or oh, most of them in 1973. Right. right. And I think all or most of them in 1975. So for two major tours, that was all but guaranteed to be their opener, right? And there again is a song that makes no apology for being other anything other than what it is. It's a song that... It makes no apology for not even being about anything. It's just, right. it's a song about the fact that it's a song is pretty it's much what song. it is. Yeah. And, you know, there's, you know, I grew up in, in a time and in a place when music had to, a song had to be something. It had to mean something. It wasn't enough mm-hmm. that it sounded cool or it wasn't enough that it had a cool music video. You know, that song had to have some kind of great, vast, bullshit, fucking annoying, preachy, <laughs> uh, transcendental right. value. Right. Like, right. I don't know why, but I mean, it's just Kurt Cobain was, a, I, I guess, a, a good musician. He was a good songwriter, but I never, ever felt really, and technically I'm not really Generation X anyway, but right. I was never really comfortable with the idea of him being uh, presumed the spokesman for that generation because Mm -hmm. you know number one a lot of his songs are just kind of random lyrics strung together because they rhyme and you know (laughs) number two you know even the songs that he wrote that did have some kind of weightier loftier goal to it you know I, i don't know it's just Ultimately, what I what I eventually decided was it, it was just wrongheaded to expect every single song to be uh, like a, a message, you know. Right. It's okay for a song to just be a song, you know. Just be a song, yeah. And yeah. and and in the case of uh, feeling hot, I mean, you know, here again, you you and I are sort of. <laughs> it's kind of funny. <laughs> intellectualizing that which is not to be intellectualized. Right, which, exactly. You know, yeah. you could, I think, say that about the entirety of, of rock music kind of as a form. But, you know, there's still, there's still a certain amount of consciousness that comes with lack of consciousness because you have to at least be conscious enough to realize you're not really conscious. And so... <laughs> It, I don't know. It all comes out in the wash, I guess. The point is, 
you know, the bass on Feeling Hot is, it's just cranked up to 11. The, the, the guitar is on fire. Those drums just never stop. And it's a pulse pounding, just grab you by the, by the throat type of rock song. And it's a crying shame that it wasn't, at least of the, the two uh, Coverdale Page concerts that I have, this actually wasn't the, um, the uh, opening song for either of those concerts. And that's mm. a damn shame. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, um, look, we're talking about people who are professionals. I'm sure they know how to craft a concert of music that has mm-hmm. the right balance to it, that keeps everybody's ego, you know, uh, <laughs> pacified right. and all that. But you, you talk about just something that is just so obvious as your opening song in the same way that rock and roll was the obvious choice as an opening song. Yes. What might've been, what might've been, what might have been exactly. Well, they, they uh, put a few other songs in between my first and second choice. Yes. Damn them. And, and, (laughs) and they're not, and they're not terrible songs. And it hurt me a little bit to skip over, um, 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 easy does it, for example, or some of the, a couple of the other tunes, but as I'm listening and then when it came on my next choice, it just has to be there. It had, had to be there. Yes. A song called absolution blues. that guitar dude <laughs> oh man i mean this... it's like the thing about it is this song is not an instrumental no but you no. wouldn't necessarily immediately know that no anyway no. for a while i thought it might be i thought oh they're just gonna jam for us okay the cool but oh my god um yeah absolution blues and I think the song is about lyrically exactly what the song says. It's it's absolution blues, and uh, Jimmy goes right back to his blues roots for this. Yes. So while it has some loud modern tempo and some uh, and some you know chord changes that are not tra- quote traditional blues. Mm-hmm. The song really is. Uh, you put, you know, old big belly acoustic guitars. That's twice I've used the phrase big belly acoustic guitars in one show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, you know, these big old uh, Gibson, big old dreadnoughts is what they're really called. 
uh, and they have that deep acoustic guitar sound that the old black musicians would play in the 20s that were slightly out of tuned or tuned a little low. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's doing exactly that with this song, except he's doing it with, uh, you know, a huge Marshall stack and his, uh, you know, electric guitar and it's fuzzed up the wazoo. But it is exactly that. Uh, he's basically saying that, uh, uh, well, exactly, the blues absolves you of all crime and problems, and it doesn't matter what's going on. Uh, all you really need is the blues to to get by, and and um, you know, and to a, to some degree, that's been kind of truthful in my life. There have been times where. You just think, you know, fuck this. Just fuck this. <laughs> and, you know, you just put some old blues on, and the next thing you know, yeah, it doesn't feel that bad anymore. You know, it's, it's you know, you just see things a little clearer. And these last two songs on this album helped me see things really clearly. So uh, I really love this this song, too. Uh, uh, not quite on the level of feeling hot, um, uh, but I love what it's doing and I love the feel. I think you and I, it's funny, you and I are very similar in that it, the music has to get us first. We've got to like what it sounds like mm-hmm. before we even really give a shit what they're saying. Right. You know, if they're saying something I agree with or I like or is somehow metaphorical or you know, metatextual or something. Yay, way to go. But sometimes, you know, you could be talking, you know, monkeys like to eat their own doo-doo. Okay, but the song is really good, (laughs) you know? So uh, this song falls in that category for me. I like what it says because he's basically saying when he gets down to it that, you know, yeah, life sucks, life's a bitch. But the blues absolves you of all your problems. Play the blues and the sun will come up tomorrow. Tomorrow, tomorrow. <laughs> well, <laughs> and, uh, to kind of touch on your, your point about how one connects to music, um, you and I were talking before we started recording. Um, I used to work in a, a, a call center environment, and there came a point when I stopped taking calls and I started taking chats instead. And so, well, yay, because now I get to listen to music while I, while I work. And I don't know why, but I, what I ended up doing was sort of settling on this kind of mid to late 70s sort of disco mix that I found on YouTube, which is incredible work music because it's, it's, got, it's got energy to it. It's got, uh, it, it's got melody, rhythm. And yeah, 110 to 120 beats a minute keeps your heart moving, keeps you up, keeps you awake. Yeah, there's a reason disco was played in dance halls. It you want that energy. Yeah, yeah. And the the thing about it that I eventually discovered, I even talked to Chris Honeywell about this in some big book episode that he and I did. But the thing I found uh, about disco is that if you analyze it from the standpoint. Uh, and here we are talking about disco in the middle of this absolution <laughs> blues thing. But whatever, here we are. Um, Funny if, where the roads go. Just yeah, follow them. Yeah, pretty much. Yep. And if you analyze uh, disco from the standpoint of conventional pop music, you're doing yourself and disco a little bit of a disservice. 
at its best, which some would say was never all that fine, but at its best, disco would basically take, I would say, fairly conventional uh, pop song types of chords and uh, those types of melodies and whatnot, and it would blend them together with a little bit of what the fuck did I just hear? Mm-hmm. And disco, at its best, is full of that, where you have, you know, the, this very type of uh, ty- type of rhythm, probably the, the type of lead guitars you've heard a, th- a thousand times and a thousand pop songs. And then mm-hmm. somebody says something about moving away uh, somewhere far away where there's no blacks, no Jews, and no gays. Hold on, wait, what? Wait, what? Wait, did you just, <laughs> did, did she just say what I think she said? And that, I guess like the, the conventional mixed with the shocking, to me, that's a successful combination. You know, when yeah. you take something that's mundane, which is not to be disrespectful, but is pop music, mm-hmm. and then you mix it with a conspiracy theory, or in that case, uh, some kind of uh, intolerance for other for other types of people, mm-hmm. or or just or, or or whatever your thing is, something that's a little bit off the beaten path. It doesn't have to just be you know something sexual that's shocking. It could just be anything. Could be anything. And that to right. me is what makes disco at once kind of interesting and kind of fun to listen to, tiny little bit subversive, but ultimately harmless. You know, right. as as a Genre. Now, what people did as they listened to disco, this I won't even speculate upon, but <laughs> I'm just talking right. about musically. Eh, I don't know. It's it's one of those forms that I don't think is ever going to get it the, the, the respect that it deserves because whatever. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, I just want to throw that out there. Uh, yeah, as, for me, it was a little different. I was in the middle of it. And to me, it was it was the end of rock and roll. It was supplanting something I loved, that I lived and breathed, that I thought my world is rock and roll. And then it was like, what is all of this? What is this Donna Summer crap? What is this? Oh, my God, the Bee Gees have been – oh, no. What the fuck has happened? (laughs) It took me years to get back into that. And then when I became a nightclub DJ, a dance club DJ, I was lucky that Tuesday through Thursday, I could play anything I wanted. But Friday and Saturday, it was, if it didn't have 110 to 120 beats a minute, you didn't play it. You just didn't play it. And it was disco and rap. And when rap started to come in, that's kind of when I started to see the end of my little road. (laughs) <laughs> but but it was it, it it took me a while uh, before I could even put staying alive on and appreciate uh, the genius of Barry Gibb. I knew he was a genius. I've always known he was a genius. But that music, it was like somebody stabbed me in the back and then he came and said, oh, wait, I think I can turn that a little more. We can we can ruin a few other arteries if I just turn this a little more. <laughs> Well, it, okay. It look, took me a while to get back into them. Yeah, no, I I completely understand. But imagine, if you will, <laughs> being a teenager in the mid to late nineties, mm. and you've just watched grunge, your beloved grunge. It didn't just die; it died a horrible fucking death. Horrible, I mean, horrible death. Yes. I, I mean, we. I don't think anything 
has ever died that badly since the last time we crucified somebody. I mean, it was Ooh, fucking bad. And, and quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And bad enough that you've get that you're getting uh, this kind of more like customer service type of musical experience, like the Hootie and the Blowfish of uh, of the world, mm. where mm-hmm. yeah, you know, there's some. Um, I guess that's sort of a bluesy foundation to it. You know, lots of drinking and all mm-hmm. of that stuff. That's sort of interesting. But at the end of the day, I mean, it's just, I kind of miss Alice in Chains. And then, yeah, right. bad enough that you're not going to get any more Alice in Chains. Mm-hmm. Bad enough that Hootie and the Blowfish is now on everybody's mind. Mm-hmm. Now the fucking Bee Gees are back. Yep. Still waters, bitch. I will remember them interloping into my fucking musical. <laughs> it's like, you know, I mean, I hate to channel Dennis Leary here, but one of the few positive things that came out of the eighties was getting rid of one of the Gibbs family. Ooh. And <laughs> yeah, I know. Harsh. Yeah, oosh, I know. Yeah. But no, it, it's a cute little quip, but obviously I don't really mean that. Cause that you, you want to talk about bad. a bad death. Holy shit. Yeah, but, really. But seriously, it's just, you know, there was yeah. just so much, there was so like it, the the mid to late 90s like when people talk about music in the 90s and this really pisses me off but when people talk about music in the 90s it's like guys there were other songs out there than smells like teen spirit you do know that mm-hmm. right yep but you know it's like so much of what happened especially in the like the mid 90s i think is like criminally underrated you know you had this brit pop you know mm-hmm. blur oasis type of sound and you know that's pretty interesting and then you know, trip hop was a thing. You know, you had the sneaker pimps, and I loves me some sneaker pimps. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you know, and I'm not just saying that because Kelly Dayton is hot, but <laughs> you know, yeah, all of these different uh, sounds and moods and styles, and yeah, grunge is dead, and apparently we we got do not resuscitate orders on this thing. But you know, whatever. There are there are other things that are coming along. You know, you like I say, you know, you got Brit, you got Brit pop, you've got this electronica stuff. I mean. The sky's the limit, and then here come yeah. the fucking Bee Gees. Bee Gees back. come out. Yeah. And uh, anyway, it, you 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 want to talk about a real pisser? I mean, that was like the perfect primer leading into 1998 and all the depression that followed. Holy shit! Because you know that is amazing. Here they were, the Bee Gees, a great early pop rock band. They 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 created some great original music in the 60s and 70s, and then they did that disco stuff. So they they hurt me, depressed me, and then 20 years later, they came into a whole other genre and screwed them. Yeah. A different generation even. Yeah. That's not fair. And, and he produced so much stuff, and I thought, fine, as long as you just produce it, I don't have to listen to it. It doesn't have your name on it. I don't have to know you're doing it over there for Whitney and all those other people. Go have fun. <laughs> but don't be coming into my world and putting your crap over here now. I don't know. be doing that. I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> all right. The so, musical uh, resentment that was us in the late 90s. <laughs> oh, geez, what a but, you know, it, it's the kind of thing now. Uh, we are and have lived through some very interesting times, but we're at a point now mm-hmm. where – uh, it is a little harder for maybe you to find the kind of music you're really into, and it's maybe kind of hard for groups to get their music out on a big label or whatever. But there's so much stuff available now. God, if you yes. take the time to look, 
you know, uh, a young friend of mine. I say young because he's still in his 40s. But, um, <laughs> uh, you know, I was bitching the other night about, you know, there was nothing good to listen to. I just can't find any good music, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. So uh, uh, he Chromecast, I got Chromecast in the house. So he picks up his phone and goes to his little Spotify account and puts it up on my system and starts playing all this really good music. And I'm thinking, what is this? This is blues. This is old rock and roll. Where are you finding this stuff? And it's young people. It's kids in their 20s finding the good old music, and they're still doing it and still writing it in that style and still creating it. Uh, it's like if you're a hardcore country fan, if you like real country. Yes. Uh, the early guys, Hank Williams, Johnny Cash, you know, the real guys. Yeah. You don't like modern country pop, southern it's, it's, rock. It's pop mix. music and a cowboy hat. It's not country. It's exactly what it is. It's pop music with boots and a cowboy hat. It's not real country music. But if you really look. There are young people out there, and I mean young people, mm -hmm. early 20s and stuff, who are doing authentic, real, hardcore country music. They're writing it, they're producing it, and they're putting it out there. You may not find it in your top 50 iTunes or whatever lists. You're going to have to do some digging. But uh, over the last year, year and a half, my eyes have been opened. A friend of mine, he told me, he said, put that, throw your iPod away. You just keep listening to the same songs you've listened to for 40 years over and over and over again. Listen to some new music. And I just was bitch. There's no new music out there. There's nothing that I want to hear out there. These kids are all doing, God knows what they're doing. We don't even do the same drugs. I don't even know what the kids are <laughs> <laughs> So, so you know, uh but he found some stuff, and I – so about a year or so ago, I opened up, and now I'm listening to young people, and and uh, I'm finding it. But you do have to dig. You do have to you – know, I do you have a recommendation for you then. Yeah. I was originally going to keep this to myself, never to be talked about in public, but <laughs> I, I take what you just said as a, a little bit of you throwing down the gauntlet. So um, this was uh, – geez, uh, it was probably like – Several months ago, really, at this point, I it, it. How does anybody find new music? I mean, it, it's it's where you find it. That's where it is. And um, I heard about this uh, this band called Dream Machine. And the shtick of this band is they look like they were born or not born, but they look like they were they 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 came of age in the seventies, but their sound is a little bit more. And I don't mean like. Uh, pretense. I mean, like the real thing, sounds very much like kind of that sort of '60s psychedelia type stuff. Mm -hmm. And you know, this isn't just an affectation that they adopted for one song. This is their genre. This is what it's they what play they with. like. Yes. Okay. Good. And you know, it's one thing. I mean, you probably have heard it often enough by now. It's really hard for one generation to go back to a different one, you know, go back to the one yes. before. It's really tough yeah. to do that. Yeah. Um, or at least to do it convincingly. And it's one of the reasons why just for example, you, you know, no one's really heard a new ragtime song in a while. Well, there, there's a reason for that, <laughs> right. you know? Right. And, um, they actually, I don't know how, but they somehow fucking cracked the code. And so they basically, not only did they release, um, a, uh, 
sort of like this uh, publicity photo of themselves in their kind of late 60s, early 70s uh, finest. Mm-hmm. Not only did they release an album that is, in terms of genre, almost entirely operating inside of the psychedelia sort of milieu, they made a fucking concept album. Oh, cool. And on top of all of that, you may like this part. It's apparently about how much they hate social media. Oh, wonderful. And so it's I, I, when I when I heard this song or not the song, when I when I heard this this album. I mean, it really was like a mind job because it's like somebody found they discovered this album that except for its its subject matter, you know, like the topical aspect of it. You could just as easily have plucked out of 1967 and who would know the difference. That's how authentic this sounds. And so, look, far be it from me to shove my musical taste on somebody else's throat, but think of this <laughs> as a challenge, you know. This is not a this is not a a, a shove. This is a, a, a something I love doing. I love when people turn me on to new music. And I have not heard of the Dream Machine, but I did make a note. I actually have pen and paper next to me. I actually just wrote down the Dream Machine. Hmm. So well, the name uh, of the album is uh, the Illusion. The Illusion. Yep. And um, now I guess as far as like, you know, I mean, look, my musical tastes are just so weird. I, I don't think probably PQ Ribber is the only guy that has weirder musical taste. Well, maybe maybe Chris Honeywell actually. Maybe his. Yeah, Honeywell will go into places that shouldn't even be spoken of yeah but i mean i do listen to like synth wave you know yeah. it's, uh, it's like listening to my childhood you know because i grew right. up and came of age in the well no, i didn't come of age in the 80s but i did grow up a lot in the 80s right and this is, i love the 80s music uh flock of seagulls all that stuff i love i love techno pop devo and b-52s go-go's i love that music I I was uh, that was the hardcore DJ days of mine oh. when and I said you know when I started working at this one particular club, uh, nineteen eighty, I started working at this particular club, yeah. and uh, I was working there Tuesday through Saturday night. Tuesdays was dead. Nobody was coming in. In fact, nobody was coming into their club except Friday and Saturday. And then just average. It wasn't any bigger than the club down the street. It was just average. Hmm. So I went into that club and I took my new wave show. I was the new wave DJ here in Richmond. None of the radio stations were playing even police or cars or go-go's. They weren't even playing the pop stuff. It was Southern rock was Richmond was very late getting in it. So I had the whole genre to myself. So I was playing everything from the Sex Pistols and Ramones to the B-52s and Devo and Rockabilly with Billy Idol. And I mean, you go down the list, whatever was big at that time, that was my thing. So uh, Tuesday, I did an oldie show that did what we called beach music, Four Tops, Temptations. Oh, yeah. The, yeah. Ki- the kind of stuff that uh, the Blues Brothers made famous, that hmm. kind of stuff on Tuesdays. Wednesdays was my new wave night. That became our biggest night. It lines around the block. We're a big college town. And the kids started coming in with their records. Hey, man, you got to play Tears for Fears or you got to play this or, you know, uh, Suicide Blonde. Here, go play this. Right. This is really cool. Yeah. And so I was playing all that stuff. And uh, I just loved that music. I thought, okay, 
what we're having here, I had the sixties was great because you had every band, even with the British invasion, they all sounded different. The Beatles sounded different than the Stones and different than the Who and different. They all had their own sound. Then we get into the 70s and no offense to Styx, Journey's Foreigner and the big hair bands, but you could pretty much interchange any of those bands. If you were going to play a Styx song in your set, you could have just as easily played a Journey or a Foreigner song instead. Yeah. It, it would have fit just as well. You know, they they genre almost became a sound as opposed to uh, a group of individuals playing within that genre of rock and roll or the British invasion. I mean, you know, uh, the, the Herman's Hermits sounded nothing like the Beatles or the Stones or any of the other guys. They were very distinct. Well, then we get into this kind of little lull thing in the 70s where you really had to look to find the rock and roll. Mm -hmm. But as we get into the late 70s, now we're starting to see the Sex Pistols, the Ramones, and we're starting to see unique sounds of a band come in again so that Elvis Costello didn't sound like anybody else. He was Elvis Costello, you know? Yeah. And I hadn't seen that since the 60s. And then we went into that other thing. And it thing. was fine with everybody else that they don't sound like Elvis Costello. They wanted to Ex be themselves. Exactly. And that, to me, is the beauty of indie rock and the kind of stuff that has to be, you know, almost thrust on you that you've got to say, hey, you physically go listen to this, you know, yeah. get your head out of that wherever it is. Go listen to this. You may not like it, but it might open your ears a little bit to something else, get you out of your comfort zone a little bit and find something else you like. So when the 80s came along and I'm hearing all these individual groups of real good cutting edge music that took from all other genres and put them together. And uh, uh, I love that. And I think we've just coming out of an age of homogenization to where you mentioned Hootie and the Blowfish and you could throw Dave Matthews band and, and yes, okay, they were, unique. Right, hold on, time out. They were unique. I, I just, sorry, go ahead. Yes. Uh, no, no, no. I was just going to say, I talked trash about Hootie and the Blowfish only because not that there was anything wrong with them, but they were a signal. Yes. Times are changing. Yes. And yeah. you know, the, the thing is, I mean, ultimately, they only really had, like, one major smash hit album. And then after that, you know, it's like the mainstream just sort of forgot about them. Well, so I, I, I truly bear them no ill will. Those are even some good songs. I think the first song on that Cracked Rearview album, great, great um, song, Hannah Jane, great song. is yes. a fan-fucking-tastic pop song. Yes, it and is. It's like that could have been a single. And I understand. You can only release so many singles from one album right. before you, right. you got to move on. you got to move right. on. Right. But that could you know, have been a single. Yeah. I, I have nothing against Hooting the Blowfish or Dave Matthews Band. I saw Dave oh, Matthews I, I Band. I fucking hate Dave Matthews Band. Yeah, you can if, – if you wanted to insult them, I'd, I'd listen, but that's okay. <laughs> Fuck those. Well, he's, he's a very talented guy that got way too much airplay, way too much everywhere. If he had stayed a regional band, if he had not had that spotlight on him – 
I think he would have had a better life and a longer musical life uh, and been more appreciated. But he got he became so popular so fast. And then every one of his songs started to sound exactly like the last one. Yeah, It was the same thing over and over and over again. And his studio stuff didn't compare to his live stuff. His live stuff was really, really, really good. It was worth being there. You were glad you were there. But you just get tired of it too quick. It was too much, too soon, too something i just got real t- for example right now on my i have no dave matthews band on my ipod at all here. none Me none no. but i do have a couple of hootie and the blowfish songs on there still yeah. so you know things change things thing, things happen yeah. and uh uh and this song absolution blues does just <laughs> that it, it absolves you of all problems because it's only the blues dude we used to say hey man it's only rock and roll you know <laughs> it's only rock and roll I'm just playing the hits man it's only rock and roll but uh uh, uh absolution blues does just that it, it brings you to a place and sets you up for i think one of the best endings to an album uh that i've heard in a long 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 time and this isn't a new band, a new album, yeah. but, uh, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It ends the album, um, really, really nicely. Uh, there's, there's several ways you can end an album. There are many ways, actually. You can end it as big as, as it started, you know, uh, uh, you can do like the Beatles did stop and then bring back something like her majesty or the golden slumbers or good night, I think was a good night, a nice little, um, lullaby or something. So you can end with a bang or you can kind of bring it down and kind of quietly just make everybody think, holy hell, what did I just listen to? <laughs> yes, indeed. And, and what song is that? Whisper for a di- uh, Whisper a prayer for a dying friend. beautiful song and I think it just really ends this this album so well um, and 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 it's and, and it's not a sad song it's not sad it sounds like it might be a sad song but it's, it's not a sad song it's actually kind of hopeful and and kind of sweet actually um, as the title you know would would kind of say I mean it's sad dying it's dying and whispering and stuff but uh here's a song where the music and and the and the lyrics do justice to each other 
and uh, he's telling you right up front. Again, they're not hiding anything on this album. This is not, they're not playing tricks. No. You know, they're not, you know, trying to set you up as Bob Dylan will do sometimes, uh, make a sound, a song sound all happy and ooh, here's a little jingly jangle happy tune until you read the lyrics and somebody's gouging his eyes out or something. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> no, this is not doing that. This is a, uh, a nice, um, almost said quiet <laughs> it's not quiet no it's not quiet but it it is compared to the rest of the album um it's ending with a soft landing how's that i think that's good it ends with a soft landing all right and the, yeah and kind of brings you back down but if you do listen to this as an album non-stop not stopping or replaying or going just put it on and it, I love listening to music in a head in headphones because you know I'm old. I'm deaf now. I need it really loud. So, and rock and roll should be played loud anyway. Yeah. So I put a really good pair of studio headphones on for a really nice system, and you just sit back and vape and let this album uh, do to you what it's going to do. Right. And. Uh, it shakes you up in the beginning. It throws you up against the wall. It screams at you a little bit, both lyrically and Jimmy Page's guitar. And then he does layers of some really, really nice stuff. Uh, there's a ballad or two where it gets a little soft, and then he brings you back up in his great combination, uh, which he does here again with the just this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful acoustic guitar. And then the melody with the... Uh, you know uh, the lead that he puts over top of it, and uh, it's Jimmy Page singing with his guitar on this song, and it's just so beautiful. I just really think it's a nice way to end. And you do when this song ends, you thank the silence. You sit there and go, "Wow, that was wow. an experience." Yeah, that was an experience. Yeah, wow, and. Um, um, I just love the way it just brings you right back down with 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 this, with this. Well, uh, the uh, at the as I say, like the time that I that I heard this album, I mean, I was as I've kind of gone to pains to say, struggling a little bit with a bizarre form of musical depression. You know, my beloved grunge had been taken out back, blindfolded and shot execution style, mm-hmm. and you know there was that kind of in the background for me and uh hard truth number two soundgarden had at that time they'd uh, just broken up and that obviously was not to last uh, although then again neither was the reunion i suppose <laughs> um but at, at that time it really did look like that was it and i enjoyed soundgarden i liked them and I also loved Led Zeppelin. And it, again, it was a source of kind of shame for me that I never really appreciated in their time how deep the Led Zeppelin influence went mm. with Soundgarden. Because it took listening to this song for mm. me to like really get it. Because to listen to Whisper a Prayer for the Dying start to finish, this could have been a Soundgarden song and would not have sounded too out of place on uh, Bad Motorfinger or Super Unknown or mm-hmm. even Down on the Upside. 
you know. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. And the other thing is that this, and this is maybe going to sound a little bit like a slap in the face, but I mean, I, I hope I don't have to prove my Jimmy Page fandom to you. No. This is sort of a uh, kind of a typical Jimmy Page composition in that feeling hot is it, it it wears its purpose on its sleeve. It slam bang in your face, grabs you by the throat, and right. takes you along for the ride. And this thing is loud, blistering. But Jimmy Page also has the in my time of dying side to him, where the song kind of lurches along, springs to mm-hmm. life, goes right. back to lurching, springs back to life, and then maybe picks up a mid-tempo somewhere along the way. And that's, again, it light and shade. It's, it, it applies to an album as a whole, but it also applies to the individual song. It's n- not just one thing, or at least it's not no. necessarily just one thing. Mm-hmm. And you can have these these passages and movements where a song, you know, it picks up and comes to life and then it drops back a bit. And, you know, you hear it with In My Time of Dying, you hear it with Carousel Ombra, and you hear it with uh, Whisper a Prayer for the Dying, where, you know, the, the lyrical subject matter, whatever it is, the music is, a, is the perfect accompaniment lyrically and i guess melodically yeah the structure of the song it's not just one thing it picks up it drops back it uh it picks back up again it moves it's got those dynamics to it and it's one of those things that other songwriters it's not that they're incapable of doing this but it seems like it's really just jimmy page's forte for some reason it's like he's the only guy that's doing songs this way i don't know why I would love it if more people would do their songs like this, but whatever, at least we get whisper a prayer for the dying. And, right. you know, it's to me, it, it's the mark of a, of a good song when you can appreciate, I guess the emotionality of it, you know, the content of it, but also appreciate like the, the, I guess the design philosophy of why the, why does the song start slow, but then pick up right here and then drop right back. Why does it do that? And, the analysis of it, you know, I like I like the fact that oftentimes Jimmy Page will give you a little something to chew on, you know, in mm-hmm. terms of just appreciating the music. Does that make exactly. sense? Exactly. 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 And yeah, you're right. I did get the name wrong. I don't know why I added the friend at the end, but yeah, whisper a prayer for the dying. Oh. And uh, yeah, I I don't know why I said whisper a prayer for the dying friend or something. But no, no, but, close enough. Yeah, close enough for government work anyway. <laughs> But, uh, uh, you know, it's funny because when I was listening to this, even though it sounds nothing like him, uh, a Mozart tune went through my head and because Mozart would do the, the, the same thing in classical music where he would change tempos and change orchestration, but keep the same melody line and themes throughout. Yes. And this does that. It's a consistent theme throughout the song. But it changes, and it and and um, and I do believe that is for the lyrics. Even though I didn't memorize the lyrics and stuff, I believe the song is going along with as it talks um, uh, uh, about the topic. At certain points, it's uh, it gets it gets a little down, mm-hmm. and then speeds back up and brings you in. But it does take you on a little ride, 
And um, I think the album does that. And it's put together so well that it moves from the up-tempo, hard-driving to something not so fast. It'll show off other talents. Um, but this whole album does give you a feel of Led Zeppelin that you don't really get for some of their other solo material. You know? Or and even it's a at feeling. times, even Led Zeppelin. I mean, you know, this oh, right. is a more Led, Led Zeppelin, Zeppelin album, I would say, yeah. than In Through the Outdoor. <laughs> right, right, right. And uh, could... Go ahead. Oh, I was just saying it could be because of the uh, the amount of orchestration in in uh, 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 the way that it's orchestrated. This this just feels like uh, it's it. They're not playing too many games. You know, you're getting the true sound of Jimmy Page. He's not trying to hide the fact that he's Jimmy Page or former Led Zeppelin guitar player mm -hmm. uh, and writer. He is Jimmy Page, Led Zeppelin guy. And, uh, the you know, the guitar riffs that he's put in here could very easily go on Houses of the Holy for crying out loud. You oh, know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, you know, it, it's it's. um you know, it kind of the way I felt a little bit about some of uh, Paul's, the Beatles, Paul McCartney uh, solo work. His solo work was more Beatlesque than either George or John's material. Um, a lot of his stuff, you could just, you know, have John and George singing harmony and George doing the guitar, and it's a Beatles song. Uh, where John's material and some of George's material was not that beetle like it it you know you'd have to fudge it a little bit to make it beetly mm -hmm. um and i feel that way kind of about this album you know if robert plant was singing this could be a led zeppelin album oh yeah you know well so, and like the thing was i mean like just to put that into some kind of perspective i mean when they were doing their 1995 tour of the united states if it's a, if it if you gather from this that I have recordings of illegitimate origin somewhere on my hard drive of that tour, pay no oh, attention cool. to it. It's it's probably just a trick of the microphone. But um, <laughs> the there were times, at least to start with, where they would play. Uh, poor old Thompson was the um, rhythm guitarist for that tour, mm, and he mm -hmm. used to play guitar for The Cure, and so they would play a Cure song. And then um, uh, Robert Plant had just done, prior to Page and Plant, had just done Fate of Nations. And so they would play Calling to You from Fate of Nations. Mm -hmm. And then they also played Shake My Tree from <laughs> this. kidding. I wish I was. And, oh. I mean, you know, I would, just to hear the fact of it, wow, Robert Plant singing Shake My Tree, you know. Yeah. What would that, that must sound just fucking, am it's not. It's not, it's no. a, it's mm -hmm. it's almost like he goes out of his way to kill the song. It Ooh. makes me think. Yeah, I know, I know. It just it's just a kind of a prick thing to do, and it I can't help thinking, you know, that's probably why they didn't play "Shake My Tree" all that often. And really, it was before they added a whole lot of love back to the set. Right. It was really just the showcase for Jimmy Page to play the theremin in concert. Oh, okay, gotcha. Right. And so it. It's 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 kind of funny that, you know, everybody else in in the band who's playing anything, 
they sound pretty good. I mean, Michael Lee, he's no Denny Carmassi, but he gets the job done. He sounds all right. 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 And then you get to that section where uh, Jimmy Page starts playing uh, the, the theremin, and it's at the perfect moment in the song. It just sounds amazing. Literally, the only thing that goes wrong with this is Robert Plant's contribution. And, mm. you know, there's no way to say that without sounding kind of like you're down on Robert Plant. So that must be because I am, in fact, a little bit down on Robert Plant. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, I look, I I want to like the guy. I really do. But he just gives me every single possible freaking reason not to, you know. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's one of those things where... I wouldn't want to meet Jimmy Page in person just because it goes back to that thing of never meet your heroes. Right. You know, um, what if he's having a bad day and he's a complete jerk? Exactly. That's going to affect me on a level that like if like just the when I was at work yesterday, I was outside vaping and some guy tried to uh, pick a fight with me. And it was just this whole to do. But basically Mm -hmm. this this random schmuck who was wandering around. I guess just didn't like my face or something. So he tried starting a fight with me. And so I had to get security and they ended up getting involved. And there was this whole thing that didn't exactly ruin my day. It's definitely the weirdest part of my day because it's not Mm -hmm. like that happens all the time. Yeah. But, you know, that it didn't really ruin my day. I mean, I had a good day. Otherwise, you know, I got a lot of stuff done at work and I'm Mm -hmm. I'm happy that I went in on Friday. If I were to meet Jimmy Page and he's a jerk to me, Mm. that. fucking changes everything i mean yeah so if one my point is if one random stranger is a jerk who cares if jimmy page but dude meeting robert plant i'm i honestly don't want to meet him because i have no idea what i'm gonna say you know i mean right Right. i mean on the one hand you might ruin his day right (laughs) and and then that kind of goes back to like the moral aspect of you know he has a right to say the things that he believes to be true, to do the things that he thinks are right. And Magnus, mm-hmm. what right do you have to call him out on that and tell him he's wrong? You know, where do you get off? You know, and, you know, I come to that. I don't have a right to, to be mean to him. You know, he's he's co-written or written, certainly sang some of my favorite songs of all time. Mm-hmm. He's uh, given me hours upon hours of uh, amusement of recreation, even at sometimes kind of, if, if you take my meaning kind of like comfort, his right. music has Absolutely. been very comforting to me over the years, like mm-hmm. when I really needed it. Right. And so, you know, but yeah, no, I don't want to meet the guy. Cause I kind of think he's a kind of a cock, but, mm-hmm. but Jimmy page, it really would be, don't meet your heroes. There's no way this is going to end well, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't care. how. I can nice see that. Yeah, yeah. I can see that. Uh, I have, I've not, usually gone out of my way to to meet uh, you know anybody really um, even when I was in the music business and we were sponsoring a lot of concerts and I met a lot of people I mean I could we partied with a lot of bands from kiss to super tramp to oh, awesome it, uh, to Delbert McClinton. I mean, I can go down the list of bands and people that I met because a radio station was partly responsible for bringing them to town. And we did little interviews and shit with them. Uh, <laughs> Bob Seeger and, you know, I mean, on and on and oh, on. Oh, I bet he's got some stories, dude. Oh, Bob, Bob Seeger. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> I could have talked to that sucker all night. And he's a little guy. I mean, he's a little oh, guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's funny because he was the warm up act, if you can believe it, for Kiss. 
at uh, the Richmond Coliseum. Which Richmond Coliseum's, uh, this was 1976, 77. Okay, all right. Now that I can see. I, th- I thought this was like 1990s or something. Oh, like, no, 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 really? no. This was, this was uh, the year he was recording, that Bob Seger was recording the Silver Bullet Band Live. It was that tour oh. that they finally released that album that then made him, you know, the household word and night moves and all that stuff. Um, but they were the front band. They came out first and it's like 12,000 people in the Coliseum packed and mostly kiss kids, all of them out there with their makeup waiting to see kiss. And Bob Seger walks out and one of our DJs interview, you know, not interviews, but introduces Bob Seeger and the Silver Bullet Band. Does a great intro because our radio station, we were playing the hell out of Bob Seeger. Right. Uh, we loved Bob Seeger long before he was a big name. So great introduction. Bob Seeger and the Silver Bullet Band. And, you know, a little, yay, polite applause from the little kiss crowd mm-hmm. who were just, you know, singing kiss, 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 kiss. Well, about 10 minutes in. Bob Seger had those kids by their short hairs, man. I mean, he just knocked the roof off of that place. He did about an hour and 10 minutes and walked off. I was was stage right, right behind the, 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 the speaker system. And he walks off and he goes, Bob, how'd we do? I mean, what do you mean, how did you do? Are you kidding? These kids who came here to see Kiss are now ready to do anything the god Bob Seger wants them to do. <laughs> he had them eating out of their hands. They forgot. Gene Simmons was pissed. He oh, wow. was pissed. So uh, this was really funny. So uh, Bob Seger comes off, goes and says, Bob, how we do? How'd we do? And I'm just laughing, thinking, my God, this was great. So uh, the band and all of us, we walk back and the Coliseum has these corridors back to the dressing rooms and they're terrible dressing rooms. But we're walking back through with the Bob Seger band mm-hmm. and uh, Kiss's door is open. So their dressing room door is open. And some of us from the radio station, you know, Bob and their guys went to with their wives and they get in their limos and they just leave. They're gone. So we walk, we get ready to go into the Kiss dressing room. And, you know, the roadies are taking down the set out there and going to, and it took them maybe 15, 20 minutes to break it down and get all of Kiss's stuff up. And Gene Simmons says, fuck it, let them wait. They need to calm down. They need to calm down. Fuck it. I'm not going out there with all those fucking rednecks. Fuck them. Fuck them. He was pissed. Fuck him, they were, dude. Rednecks? They were so into Bob Seger, and he just said, fuck them. Fuck those fucking rednecks. Those are you his know? fucking fans. This is No kidding. No kidding. And the place, you know, out of the 12,000 people there, 10,000 of them there were there strictly for Kiss. It was the first time they'd ever heard of or seen Bob Seger. And because he gave a great show, what Kiss should have done was if they had come out as soon as that place was ready, they would have taken those cheers up another whole level. It wouldn't have taken three or four songs to get everybody back into it. They would have just upped it another level. And they didn't do it. They got the crowd on their side. It was a kiss crowd. They were there for the makeup and the space scenes and the fire and the shit. But uh, Bob Seger educated a whole crowd that night about what real rock and roll was. 
And uh, okay, uh, see, like the thing. Okay, this this kind of bothers me because, I mean, look. On the one hand, we're talking about Kiss here, and I know that they're kind of a they're basically Scott Rifen's favorite band, and for all I know, Rifen is listening to this right now. Hi, Scott. So, huh? Just saying hi to Scott. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and so I don't want to make it sound like too bad because I don't want to upset Scott because, you know, Scott's a, a, a supremely cool guy, obviously. Mm-hmm. But that's just mm-hmm. a dick thing to do, man. I mean, yeah. like, number one, you're going to just shit talk an entire uh, arena full of people who have just paid you their fucking money. Yeah. They're your to fans. the radio station people who sponsored you and brought your concert here in the first place. Yeah. We were all the radio station people. He may not have known me personally, but we all had our backstage passes and our signs on. He knew we were the radio station that was sponsoring them, that was playing the hell out of their record. And, and he's just got and calling <laughs> And I have a complete collection of KISS. I have not the newer stuff, but up until about nineteen eighty eight or nine or something, mm-hmm. I have all of the KISS stuff prior to that. All of that stuff. Uh, I like Dress to Kill. I think, you know, um, uh, Love Her All I Can is just one of the greatest rock and roll songs ever written. And it's just, you know, like second song side two of Dress to Kill or something. It's a deep cut and it's just a great rock and roll song. And Kiss, I saw Kiss at least five times live. I saw them before not before makeup. They had makeup, but they didn't have costumes and platform heels and fire. Oh, wow. At a very small place that held maybe 200 people. And it was very close and personal with yeah. Kiss. And uh, so I, I, I'm not going to say anything negative about Kiss, but Gene Simmons was an asshole. And in fact, after the concert, we went out front to watch them. I didn't stay backstage for the Kiss because I wanted to see their show. Their show is theater, too. So we went back out front and sat up in the bleachers to watch the fireworks and the, you know, the whole show to watch the whole thing. And, uh, um, after the show, we went backstage again and I mean, he's huge when he's in his full costume. All oh, yeah, four he's, of a, well, he's not exactly a shrimp to begin with anyway. No, he's a big man anyway. And when he's in his, you know, eight to 10 inch platform boot things and full costumed, they're huge. They are huge, huge, huge men. And when they're putting on the attitude and not just, you know, shows over. Now we're just actors in makeup when they're still in, you know, kiss mode backstage coming off of the show. And, you know, they've got adrenaline is still pumping. It's still a good show. Um, we're walking out the back with them and they had limos like their Elvis or something. So they had each one. Uh, there were two limos kiss. I mean, kiss. Uh, Gene and Ace got in one limo and Paul and the other guy got in the other limo and uh, they still had their makeup and all the stuff on. Well, there was this little girl who left the concert early to go back and wait at the limos to hopefully get an autograph. Right. And they just blew this kid off. I mean, she couldn't have been more than 13 or 14 in her little pigtails and kiss makeup looking as cute as hell. So. They just blew her off. Gene Simmons almost stepped on her. So they get in their limo and they close the door and they slam it. They're just waiting to leave in the traffic. So I just walk up and, you know, start knocking on the door on the on the back window. And uh, Ace freely lowers the window and says, yeah, man, what's up? 
And I said, this little girl really would love an autograph. And I gave her, I gave Ace the pen and the little piece of paper. And Ace signed it and handed it to Gene. And Gene just held his hand up and says, no, thanks. So then he gave it back. And the little girl got Ace, so I gave it to her. But Gene wouldn't sign her autograph either. He was just being a real dick to the whole night. He was good on stage, but off stage both before and after that show. I didn't care if I ever saw Gene Simmons ever again in my life, ever. Well, and like the thing about it is, I mean, they've got their, this reputation as like this really fan-centric band. I mean, like the Kiss Army. Yeah. Like there are bands up, like I put them up there with like the Deadheads, you know, yeah, I mean, in yeah, terms exactly. of like a diehard loyalty, you, there are, it's not just any band that can make that kind of a connection with any audience. No, and no. Ten for so long. Oh, yeah, yeah. And but the other thing is, you know, sometimes you go to a concert and you kind of go in sort of like with no expectations. And mm -hmm. you can like sometimes you can find like some kind of nice little golden nuggets, you know. Right. And like a good example of this is um, I had a first date with uh, this girl. And, you know, Bob, I know that you've been in maybe not this exact situation, but like this type of situation right where you, you've just gotten out of this relationship with somebody and you're kind of asking yourself you know like do i still have it you know i mean is, right. it, is this it is it is it over or, or <laughs> right. do is is there going to be like a future for me and you know just like not like the big questions but that kind of mopey sad bastard stuff that everybody goes mm -hmm. through after they break up with somebody and so anyway i found myself on a first date and we were going to go to the engine room right mm -hmm. well i'd never been there before and, um, you know, it, I, my, I guess my sense of it was like, this is where the high schoolers come to party, I guess. And no, that's, that's not, that wasn't completely right, but it wasn't completely wrong either. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, there I was like 23 and what am I going to talk? I hope I don't, are the high schoolers <laughs> going to be here tonight? Cause I really don't want right. to put up with that. And no, thank God it was, uh, I guess it was a school night or something. I don't know. But, uh, anyway, so it was mostly adults and it was this. It wasn't exactly the greatest triple bill that anybody's ever had, but it, it wasn't it wasn't horrible, right? It was basically Maria Taylor, um, what's what's his uh, Ben Lee, mm -hmm. this kind of folk singer type type of guy, and then Harmar Superstar. It's like he can play a song, or he can keep his pants on. He cannot do both right. at the same time. <laughs> <Right. You know? clears throat> right. So that's what Harmar Superstar is kind of famous for, their singer and. Uh, so I thought, okay, well, whatever. I'm sure I'll see a picture of the, uh, I'm sure I'll see the guy's butt. So, you know, <laughs> there's the night's uh, token amount of strangeness. So even if this date ends up being kind of a crash, mm. well, whatever. And so Maria Taylor comes out and I, I guess I'd like heard of Azure Ray and I'd heard of now it's overhead. But again, it just seemed kind of like Gilmore Girls, teeny bopper type stuff. Right. And it just, right didn't seem like it was going to be too much of my scene. And she played like, I think the first song that she played, it was this kind of dream poppy type sound, um, type of song. Um, the song beneath the song is what it's called. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it's this kind of slow melodic and she kind of, it's almost like she's whispering the lyrics and it's, I don't think it's intended to be like seductive, but let's face it. She's kind of right. Hot. And mm. so had the opportunity, it was just a million to one shot. Talk to her, to, to Maria Taylor, like after the 
the after her part of the thing was over and they were setting up somebody, I don't know. And, you know, I mean, she was, again, really hot. And what I remember is like, you know, because it's the engine room and it's just loud in there anyway, you kind of mm-hmm. have to stand like that extra two or three steps closer to each other. Right. Just to hear. Just to hear, right. And like her breath had like this, like she must have just like sprayed it down with like um, that. What? I don't Banaka or, or oh, okay, well, yeah, one of those breath smell, yeah, yeah, spray things, yeah, yeah, and it was, uh, I mean, it's like I'm not on a date with, I don't even know you, but it's like now I just kind of want to kiss you goodnight because you're <laughs> right. that first song right. was right. Uh, got me in the mood. So, um, and it was just this really neat little conversation, you know. And she said that, mm-hmm. yeah, this is her first time playing, or not her first time. I think what she said was. She hadn't played in Texas in a long time, and then it was only Austin. She'd never actually been here before. Mm-hmm. And it was just this, this just kind of, it wasn't exactly small talk, but it wasn't like a real conversation. It was just weird kind of middle. And, you know, it's like you don't get that necessarily all the time. You know, like you go to these concerts and, like, how often do you ever, like, even if it's at a club, like how often do you really, like, talk to the people who just got through playing? But this time luck of the draw, you know, I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And there she is. She's, yeah, you know, that's and, rare. You know, it was, I doubt that was the high point of the tour for her. It was definitely the high point of the night for me because <laughs> right. the, the date was nothing to write home about. And right. sure enough, you know, yeah, I still got it. Just <laughs> my future, whatever it is, ain't with her. Right. And it's, it's just, to me, that's what rock and roll is supposed to be, you know, where you know the 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 band gets something and then the audience gets something and you know it's it's for a night but you know this whole kind of ships in the night type of type of thing that's what rock and roll is supposed to be you know mm-hmm. if if i can call maria taylor rock and roll i don't sure. know if i should but whatever and you know for to tie it back to your story for uh gene simmons to act kind of like a like a little snot like that. I mean, I, I was a total stranger to Maria Taylor and we had this kind of neat little conversation, you know, it's like five mm-hmm. or 10 minute conversation. Yep. And we talked a little bit about her music, but mostly it was just about life on the road. And how do you like this Texas weather? Hey, this is summer in Texas, bitch. Doesn't get any better than this. So right. get comfortable. Just small talk and, you know, something to say, and you got a chance to meet her and talk her and tell her you liked her music. Yeah. And the thing is, she wasn't even doing a meet and greet. She was just like wandering through like that part of the club. And I just happened to be there and she almost spilled her beer on me. And so that, mm. and that kind of led into a conversation and I kind of wish I could have gotten in her pants, but you know, whatever it, it, the point is I didn't get in her pants, but I did get something else out of it and she got to keep her pants on, but she still got something out of this too. And it didn't require her to take her pants off. So I'm sure she was happy about that. You know, happy. Well, you never know. She could have been thinking the same thing. Right. I don't know. And it's just that it's that's the point of rock and roll. You know, you're supposed to have this give and this take and this fun and this music and you're, I don't know. It's just to, to see somebody intentionally throw that away. Right. And they but, have this, you know, you never know. And then that's the thing, you know, uh, cause I was pissed at him for a long time. And then somebody just mentioned, well, you never know. He could have, you know, had a bad day. His wife divorced him or so. Yeah, cause that's, yeah. he gets in a lot of trouble because he can't keep it in his own pants. So, you know, you're going to reap what you sow out there. So if you're shitty to people, 
you know, I don't know that that little girl is still a Kiss fan. I mean, you know, we're, we're talking uh, late 70s now, right? So, um, and she was probably 13 or 14, so she's probably 45 now or so. Yeah, and uh, so I don't know that, you know, what she got out of that night. Will she remember, oh, I got Ace Frehley's autograph? Or will she remember the DJ that got it for her? Or will she remember that Gene Simmons nearly stepped on her? You know, uh, who knows what she remembers now from those. But what I'm glad to hear from your story is that there are still clubs. And I think this is true even for the the nowadays uh, young 20-somethings. Uh, I would tell if there are 20-somethings listening to this, get out there and listen to live cheap music. Go to your local nightclubs, wherever they are. If they hold 150 people, if you see a sign out front that says live music tonight, go listen to them. Pay your two bucks or your 10 bucks or whatever it costs, your two drink minimum. Go in and listen to some local live music. It will change your life, literally. It may not that one night, but there's nothing better than live music. And periodically, you're going to catch everybody on the right night. And Everybody is into it, and you're going to hear something you've never heard before, and it it really will make a difference. Well, I used to live across the street from a bar that would have uh, live music on uh, weekends, Mm -hmm. or or it's like select weekends. I don't know what the arrangement was, but they would have – and you know, because it's a bar and because this is Texas and because you know the the clientele (laughs) to which this bar catered was – the more country side of the uh, the aisle. Yeah, I'm thinking I'm thinking now the Blues Brothers with the chain link fronts in front of them to block the beers being thrown at them. <laughs> well, <laughs> I I never went in there. I wouldn't be surprised to see something like that. But right. you know, there were I would have like box seats in a, in a sense to uh, this music because. You know, I lived literally, I'm, I'm not exaggerating, directly across the street. Like I would step outside of my front door, look to the right, and there's the front door of the bar directly across the street. And they would usually have the doors open just to get, mm. kind of give like the sound somewhere to go. Right. Because right. they don't want the people in there to go deaf, I guess. <laughs> <clears throat> and so, you know, basically I could hear the free music and, you know, sometimes, look, you, you, you get a lot of standards it's stuff that you've heard a thousand fucking times before but sometimes you know you get something that's really uh it's a different flavor and to kind of give you an example of what i'm talking about it was a um this if you can if you can just kind of picture this in your mind sort of like a uh sort of like countrified uh take on u2's where the streets have no name Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. it's a song that a lot of uh, people my age and older know the lyrics to just off the top of our heads. Mm-hmm. And so it's instantly sing along, but it's not overly familiar because it's got those country accents to it. Right. It's not a note for note cover. They don't even try to play <laughs> it note for note, which is, I guess, good because like the riff for that song, it's not yeah. even really a riff. So what do you do with it? Yeah. And Plus, I like when bands do that anyway. I, I, I have no problem with uh, hearing somebody play somebody else's song, but don't always try. You don't have to make it try to sound like they do. You know, I appreciate covers when your individual sound comes through. 
you know? Well, my uh, answer for that is the Jimi Hendrix version of All Along the Watchtower sounds there you nothing go. like Bob Dylan, does it? Nothing, nothing. And they're both brilliant songs and both I can listen to over and over again. And uh, both stand on their own as great individual versions of that song. Uh, the Beatle, uh, John Lennon wrote, uh, in my life, there are places, you know, uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful love song in my life. And, um, basically saying of all the people I've ever met in my whole life, uh, you're the only one I've actually loved. You know, it's, it's you, it's a beautiful, beautiful song. And I've heard everybody sing that from, you know, Johnny Cash to Pat Boone to, to, um, um, you know, to, to, to big time rock bands sing it, you know, everybody has sung that song good or bad. I think it's been covered, you know, 35 times or something. It's amazing. Everybody's done it. Some people do it really, really well. Johnny Cash put it on his American four album, the album he recorded when he knew he had months left to live. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. These were the last songs he wanted to ever record in his life. And he knew them and he sang that song. And it sounds like nobody has ever sung that song before but him. And it makes you cry. Yeah. It, it, it's just songs can do that. Music can do that. And uh, I don't know of any other. I mean, people will say, yes, poetry, songs, a story will make you cry. A good this will make a movie. And a, but music is more personal, I think, than almost any other um, art form. It's, yeah. it's, it's, you know, and particularly the way most of us listen to it now with earbuds or earphones, it couldn't get more personal. It's in your own head, you know? So, um, just, just terrific. I, I think I'm really, really wandering now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm no. really babbling, but, uh, uh, this has been a thrill talking about this album. And as you can see, it took us down many other roads, uh, cause music does that. And when you're talking about people like Jimmy Page, and even though a lot of you don't know his name, and you will now, Coverdale, David Coverdale. Yeah. <laughs> Deep, Deep Purple, White Snake. You know White Snake, even if you don't know the individual members. Yeah. You know the band White Snake for crying out loud. Well, most of the White Snake songs that you may know were sung by David Coverdale. Possibly co written. Yeah. Possibly co written by him. Yeah. So, um, well, before you know, we... I love that about that. Yes. Oh, sorry, I, I cut you off. No, I was just gonna, I was going to end it with that. That's what I love about music is that it is personal, and the more you dig, the more you will find. You may not know, like I said, Dave Coverdale, but you sure as hell know Deep Purple. You know White Snake. You know where he's been, and you just go, you know, Google his name, and the next thirty minutes you will be going down a rabbit hole of the incredible varied career of David Coverdale for crying out loud. And, and then you pair an interesting him, life. Yeah. A very interesting life. And you pair him with, you know, the greatness that is Jimmy page. What could go wrong with that? How could that be bad? It could only be bad if, you know, if it's a live record, they did it one time and one of them was not into it that night but a studio album where they're pretty much, I think they both brought their a game to this album. They were and serious about doing it. No, they question. were serious. Yeah, they were serious. And, uh, uh, they both had some songs they wanted to put, put forth 
and um, uh, you're not getting a second-rate Jimmy Page on this album. If you think, oh, it's just it's Jimmy Page, but he's not with Led Zeppelin, so it couldn't be all that great. Well, get off your little high horse. Yes, it is great. Yeah, he did a lot of good music. Uh, you know, you can be a Beatles fan and say, well, I don't listen to anything after 1969 or 1970. After they broke up, who gives a shit? Well, then you missed out on a ton of great music, and you'll be doing the You've same thing. You've missed out on, like, I would say some of the greatest, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Has there, you know, some of the greatest albums of all time were done by those guys after they broke up. Uh, I, I'll stack Band on the Run up against anything he did with the Beatles. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a matter of personal preference. I can back that statement up if you'd like, but for another time. Hmm. But uh, that's the thing about music, you know, and that's why I was really glad when, when, uh, when you approached me about this, I thought, well, this will be fun and it, and it won't be funny books and it'll be music. And, and uh, um, I happen to like the album. So that'll be, (laughs) (laughs) that helps. Well, like the thing, the thing about it is, I mean, you really were my first choice for this. I mean, the, I don't. I don't want this to sound uh, like mean or anything, but it's not hard to find um, uh, probably a, a podcast out there where somebody talked all about the merits intelligently. I might add mm-hmm. of say Led Zeppelin two or right. Physical Graffiti. I mean that stuff is got. I, I've never actually looked, but I, I assume it's got to oh. be pretty easy to find. Volumes. But, is there anybody out there besides us talking about Coverdale Page? I doubt it. <laughs> I don't think so. No. Yeah. And no. so you know, you're. I mean, I knew that you could you could bring an extra dimension to this thing, and sure enough, you have. And so I just want to thank you for taking the time to join in on a Saturday night. Oh, my night. pleasure. Because I was an adult when this came out, so. <laughs> you know. And you uh, bought it, you know. When and it came I out. did buy it. Yeah, I bought it. So. Which I, uh, so. I probably still have that CD around here. I, I don't have many of the CDs out anymore. I kind of stored them all away in boxes and stuff. Um, but periodically, I go back. I listen to vinyl now more than I actually listen to uh, CDs. Uh, I'm in a vinyl mood. Except when you do this, it's weird. Again, the coincidence was just, you know, I always say I don't believe in coincidence, but there has to be coincidence. There's no way, because I didn't say anything publicly anywhere, that I was, wow, hey, I'm currently listening to Robert Plant's Honey Dripper. And, wow, Magnus wants to talk (laughs) about Coverdale Page. Holy shit. How does that stuff happen? So, you know, uh, again, I say I don't believe in coincidence, but... I don't know that there's any kind of invisible hand out there saying, hey, you guys go talk over here because you're the only two listening to this stuff right now (laughs) (laughs) that can get on a microphone. So here we are. Mm. But uh, I just want to thank you for that. It was was a great surprise. It was a coincidence beyond coincidence. And uh, and it made me pull out an album that, you know, I may have because I was in the Robert Plant and the alternate Led Zeppelin world. I may have gotten to this, um, but I don't know that I would have unless you said, hey, 
and then uh, breaking it down, and then it made you made me listen to it because I was going to pick three songs. So I thought, well, guess I better listen to it, and I listened to the whole album again, and then again, and uh, and then one more time because today uh, I didn't have it on the headphones. Today I just cranked it up in the full stereo and had the whole house full of uh, oh. Coverdale page today. Oh wow. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm happy to have done it. I'm happy you could join in. I'm happy about how this turned out, all the different tangents and everything. I think it's uh, I, th- I think it's going to be great. But good. And I'm happy that you're editing it. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, I think editing is actually going to be. I guess we'll see. But I think it's going to be all right. But uh, before we go our separate ways, though, um, <laughs> why don't you tell everybody where it is they can find you? Because you know what, people do mm. need to be listening to you, sir. Well, thank you, sir. Uh, my main podcast is uh, the Superman Forever radio podcast, uh, originally hosted and uh, created by J. David Weeder, who is an awesome human being. Yes, he is. And uh, uh, he asked me one day if I wanted to take over the hosting duties of his Superman show. And as soon as I was able to pick my jar up off the floor, I said, sure, why not? sounds like fun and uh, so that's where you can find me that's the main thing i do now i i do a few guest spots here and there uh i spend a little time on two true freaks periodically with some of the other guys i'm not an official there yet but i know where they hide the key so i slip in the back door periodically to do a long play or something uh <laughs> But most of the time, you can find me at the Superman Forever radio podcast at supermanforever.com and bob at supermanforever.com. I talk about Superman, in case you were figuring out, trying to figure out what is that show about. Uh, I talk about (laughs) Superman. And it's not an index show. It's not a, you don't have to go and read a whole bunch of stuff to keep up with me. Uh, It's me talking about Superman. So it's as simple as that. Pretty much. <laughs> That's it. Well, thanks again for uh, for uh, joining in. And uh, my pleasure. You know, uh, who knows? Maybe at some point, maybe we'll talk about Robert Plant's Fate of Nations, or maybe we'll talk about John Paul Jones's Zuma. I don't know. We'll we'll, we'll figure something out. I don't know. Something else out. Yeah. Maybe we'll go to Long Play and do a full album. Yeah. That something. would be an interesting change of pace for us, wouldn't it? So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But um, anyway, so. I just want to thank you again for joining in. This has been a lot of fun, and I think that's pretty much it for me in this episode, this helping of Trentus Magnus jabs, apparently repeatedly jabs, because this is apparently a very long episode. Repeatedly jabs reality. So uh, uh, anyway, see you all next time. Three hours. We are out. Good job.